thank you very much for coming to join us with this meeting. Also to all of our guests, uh, our staff and media personnel and those coming to present to us this morning. We have a continuation of our NHI public hearings this morning, and we will be receiving presentations from the Competition Commissioner, the Commission for Gender Equality, and from Solidarity this morning. Ms. Majalamba, if you can please let me know what our attendance register looks like and whether we have any apologies. Thank you. Good morning and thank you, Chair. Present is Dr. Jacobs, Ms. Geller, Mr. Sokacha, Dr. Harvard, Mr. Siwela, Ms. Clark, Ms. Wilson, Ms. Ishmael, Ms. Chirwa, Mamushengwa, and Mr. Van Staden. I've received apologies from Dr. Tembekwayo, Ms. Sugers, and Mr. Imam Sheikh. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Ms. Majalamba. Honorable Fansaden, I see that your hand is raised. Uh, can I take it now? Chairperson, good morning. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, good morning, Chair and other colleagues. Now, I just want to have um, clarity on the written submissions which was done by Parliament and through our public participation process. I don't know if you want to handle it now, if in if you want to um, me to bring up a matter at the end of the after the submissions we made today. Thank you, Honorable Van Staden. I think if you can hold on to it until we are done with the submissions, it'd be great. Thank you. Uh, no, uh, no other hands, Honorable Members. So we've had our attendance register and I've told you what our agenda is for today. We will, uh, I will have to remind you though, that all who have logged into this virtual meeting of, of this committee would have to abide by the rules of the committee and of parliament. I would like to remind you that this virtual meeting is deemed to be in the precinct of parliament and therefore constitutes a meeting of a committee of the National Assembly for official purposes only. In addition to the rules of virtual sittings, the rules of the National Assembly, including the rules of debate, apply. Members enjoy the same powers and privileges that apply in a sitting of the National Assembly. Members should equally note that anything said in the virtual platform is deemed to have been said to the House and may be ruled upon. All members who have logged in shall be considered to be present and are requested to mute their microphones and only unmute when recognized to speak. This is because the microphones are very sensitive and will pick up noise which might disturb the attention of other members. When recognized to speak, please unmute your microphone and connect your video. Members may make use of the icons on the bar at the bottom of the screens, which has an option that allows a member to put up his or her hand to raise points of order. The secretariat will assist in alerting the chairperson to members requesting to speak. When using the virtual system, members are urged to refrain or desist 
from unnecessary points of order or interjections. We shall now proceed with the business of the day and we we'll therefore welcome the team from the compensation commissioner or the competition commissioner rather um, Ms. Majalamba, who is leading this team, or if the person who is leading the team would please uh, switch on a camera. I see uh, Ms. Bowler on the system. Switch on the microphone and the camera and just introduce the team and they could go straight to the presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, my name is James Hodge. I'm the Chief Economist of the Competition Commission and I'll be running through the presentation today. I am joined from the Competition Commission by our Chief Legal Officer, Bake Majenge, also the Manager in the Office of the Commissioner, Andile Guabeni, and two principals from the Advocacy and Economic Research Bureau, Tulelo Ramalola and Hariprasad Govinda. I will proceed to share our presentation. Uh, may I proceed? I assume that everyone can see our presentation. Thank you, Mr. Hodge, and uh, again, welcome again. Um, you're very welcome to continue. I can see your presentation and also hear you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Jacobs. And, and to start off, to thank the Portfolio Committee for um, giving the Competition Commission an opportunity to come and present on our written submissions around the National Health Insurance Bill. We certainly appreciate that. Um, let me just jump straight in. I think from an overall perspective, the, the Commission supports and acknowledges the overall objectives of the bill. And I think we, we often oversee a health sector which is full of market failures and understand that a unified healthcare system for the country would be beneficial. Our submission is primarily directed um, at the application of the Competition Act, and in particular, Section 3.5 and 58 of the, the National Health Insurance Bill, which would um, limit the application or eliminate the application of the Competition Act to various activities, and we'll get to that. Um, I think in summary, um, it's not clear to us from the bill why an exemption is needed in the first place, but even if there are elements that need to be exempted, that, that these exemptions are necessarily broad, as they are worded, ambiguous, and in fact, this poses a lot more risk to the NHI and whatever out-of-pocket expenditure that may occur outside of the NHI system to quite likely anti-competitive conduct by private healthcare providers. And that's going to ultimately undermine the purpose and, uh, of the NHI and its ability to achieve its objectives. We also think this broad exemption that sits within the bill is unnecessary as there already exist mechanisms within the Competition Act to exempt either genuine non-commercial activity, um, but also we have additional provisions such as ministerial block exemptions, which have been used recently during the national state of disaster to great effect and, and can be a lot, a lot more targeted and flexible way of dealing with any need for an exemption. I think in just in, to highlight that currently GEMS, which obviously acts as a single purchaser for, 
for government employees in terms of their medical needs, um, that is not exempt from the Competition Act and we haven't had any issues um, or problems from them. So as I said, there's two sections that we're focused on, section 3.5, which refers to the application of the NHI Act and there it expressly states that the Competition Act of 1998 is not applicable to transactions concluded in terms of the Act. So that would be any transactions um, in terms of the NHI Act. Section 58 and the, and the schedules that follow look to amend Section 3 of the Competition Act and, and for the member's purpose, Section 3 in the Competition Act is about the application of the Act and it begins by saying this Act applies to all economic activity within or having an effect within the Republic with the exception of, and, and the bill seeks to insert within that list um, the exception of the operations of the National Health Insurance Fund established under Section 9 of the National Health Insurance Act 2019 as a single purchaser and single payer of health services. But it extends to the operations, which is a broad um, term. So just in terms of, of the main elements to our submission, we would say section 3.5 would effectively exempt all parties to a transaction because if the transactions um, concluded in terms of the National Health Insurance Bill would be exempt, then all parties to the transactions are. And it wouldn't just be the NHIF itself. It would include all your private healthcare providers, pharmaceutical companies, medical equipment, PPE, et cetera. So anyone um, that supplies and contracts with and engages in a transaction with the NHIF or its constituent bodies. Section 58 is a bit more ambiguous because it refers to the operations and has a broad reference, but arguably the operations is very broad. But again, it's likely to extend to third parties because Section 3.5 already achieves that purpose um, that all parties to a transaction but it could be even more far reaching if we look at the total operations that, that the NHIF undertake, including some of the parties that are contracted to assist the NHIF in its operations. So what would the effect of these provisions effectively be? That we would, it would render the commission completely unable to investigate and prosecute any anti-competitive conduct. And this would include collusion, abuse of dominance, so excessive pricing, and potentially even merger control, depending on how the courts interpret that. But of course, if, if there is no ability to investigate and prosecute collusion or abuse of dominance, then there is little um, deterring private sector companies in the healthcare industry from engaging in those practices because they are effectively immune from prosecution. And that would be to the detriment of the NHI itself because the purpose of the NHI in bringing in a single um, purchaser is precisely to try and negotiate better prices for healthcare services. Um, and it's those lower prices through a national health insurance that are designed to achieve that sustainable universal access to quality healthcare services. So giving the private sector a free ride on, on, on the Competition Act would be against the NHI's ultimate objective. What we have done, and this is in the written submission, is look across other regions where there is a social health insurance, a national health, social health insurance, and, and to see whether in fact these sort of provisions exist or not. 
But uh, if we look at Europe, for instance, where most of the countries do have a form of national health care, there are very narrow um, and narrowly construed exemptions. And this is really to, to entities that are not commercial undertakings at all, um, but also those that are entrusted with the operation of a what's called a service of general economic interest. But there is no blanket exemption for the social healthcare system. And in fact, what we see, and then this is referenced in the written submissions, there is quite extensive um, competition prosecutions around collusions, abuse of dominance, and even exercising merger control throughout Europe. And it's precisely because uh, a national health system has to contract with private providers that may still engage in this abuse is why there isn't this broad um, exemption in those countries. I think the additional um, concern from, from the Competition Commission's perspective is obviously the, the final design of the NHI is not complete and the NHI bill refers to some future legislation and regulation that, that may be formulated. And so in that context, it's also premature to pass a bill that would exempt all activity when it's unknown what that would be. It would be preferable to understand some of that activity before just granting such a block exemption. So just to highlight some of the risks that the exemption would expose the NHI to, um, and of course the citizens of the country. Collusive tendering, um, so collusion is designed to try and raise the price and it would frustrate the ability of the NHI to get the lowest price. I think collusion is quite commonplace in the country. Um, the commission has exposed a lot of collusion to state contracts and continues to do so. So it's not as though the state is immune to this. Um, we've exposed collusion in healthcare and healthcare provider services to the state. So there's no reason why the NHIF would not face this risk. And as I mentioned earlier, the fact that, that the transactions would be exempt would mean that in effect, there's no deterrent effect, which would make collusion far more likely than it is currently where there is a deterrent effect. Um, I mentioned earlier as well that Europe, which has a national health insurance, has, has prosecuted numerous cartels in the healthcare sector. And that shows that again, once you have a national health insurance, it doesn't um, prevent those sort of, that sort of conduct occurring. The, the abuse of dominance would also be an element. Um, we would highlight probably excessive prices as they're the most likely here. And, and effectively, pricing at excessive prices undermines the ability to fund universal healthcare because it means that the funding that the NHIF does have goes, doesn't go as far. And of course, there would be little to deter this conduct if, if those parties couldn't be prosecuted. I think it is important to note that a lot of the concerns, and, and this was the subject of a health market inquiry by the Commission, around the high cost of healthcare is often rooted in the concentration and supply of biopower at, at different parts of the chain, be it hospitals, be it pathology, be it pharmaceutical companies. And a single buyer doesn't necessarily alter the situation. I mean, we already see that the state as, as, a, as a supplier of public service and a large purchaser still cannot bring down the cost of some of life-saving drugs to make them affordable and to roll them out within the public healthcare system. Um, I think we've seen, and this is maybe an interesting point, our recent actions around the COVID PCR testing and antigen testing 
that we engaged on late last year was was done in the context where there had been an exemption granted for the Department of Health to in fact engage the pathology groups around lowering the price of of these tests. So the existing that that sort of infrastructure of of an oversight and, and a negotiation still didn't yield low prices, and we were forced to intervene. And and not having done so would have left those prices still very high. We have a number of open investigations also on life-saving drugs where the lack of alternatives and the must-have nature of it means even if you have a single purchaser, that, that the supplier of the drug also has a lot of bargaining power in this process. Arguably, it would also expose the NHI to growing concentration in the healthcare if um, if the court saw this broad operation and transactions uh, exemption as limiting the commission's oversight of health-related mergers that would um, engage with the NHIF. Already, we have seen a period where, where hospitals have, the three big hospital groups have gradually um, cemented a, a strong position in the economy. Um, and our health market inquiry has warned against allowing future mergers in hospitals. And we recently succeeded in, in stopping one of them before the constitutional court, as it was deemed to be not in the interests um, of the constitution and access to healthcare. So quite clearly the, the court in that instance identified that growing market power and potential higher prices would, would result. We also have many examples in Europe in countries where again, they have a national health system, but much as envisaged here, they will be contracting with private players. It's also maybe a last point to note is that nothing in the bill or legislation seeks to replace the role of the competition commission. So there is no um, aspect that looks at oversight of competitive conduct um, and penalties. And one of the particular, I think, Deterrent effects of the Competition Act is the high penalties that can be um, imposed of up to 10% of turnover or 25% for a second offence. And that does have a stronger effect, the, the risk of being caught and prosecuted. I think even if, if the courts were to hold a far more narrow interpretation around the NHIS itself and not the private healthcare industry, there's still some risks, we would say, of, of a sort of blanket exemption because already within the bill and as we look across it there are areas where there may be potential competition aspects and and maybe that competition shouldn't be unduly re restricted and where that competition could be abused through collusion or or um, abuse of dominance as i've indicated and certainly as as the design is teased out to start with a bill that exempts it and then to find that that one wants competition and oversight in particular areas um, makes it very difficult to, to retrospectively then alter the bill as legislation takes time to, to change. So I've put some examples on this slide of where, where there might be contracting and competition. Um, it's unclear at this stage, but we give a full list in our written submissions. But maybe let me end off by, by looking at the alternatives which already exist within the Competition Act. Um, and we can take questions on these as well. But, uh, but certainly we're very willing and have indicated in our written submission to work with the National Department of Health and even the NHIF once it's constituted through a memorandum of understanding 
to explore where an exemption is actually needed and the rationale for that, um, and then to provide a suitable exemption where it, where it is required. And certainly our track record, as I indicated, um, has been to grant exemptions where they are required across many industries. We have granted exemptions to the National Health uh, Hospital Network in terms of allowing those hospitals to collectively negotiate tariffs, but also collectively negotiate the purchase of, of consumables and, and pharmaceuticals. Um, we gave a healthcare exemption at the beginning of the national state of disaster in order to allow coordinated response to the pandemic. And that has been very effective. And that was done under the, the minister's block exemption. There's also many other instances in many other industries where we have simply granted exemptions and, and we're more than happy to, to engage um, the relevant parties. Maybe as a general framing, um, just in terms of section three of the act, it applies to all economic activity. Um, and there is a provision in there already, which is section 31E, which has the exception of concerted conduct designed to achieve a non-commercial socioeconomic objective or similar purpose. Now, certainly our view is that, that um, a lot of what the NHIF undertakes is commercial activity or um, economic activity, but there are elements to that which may not constitute it. And we can draw on precedent from the EU in order to, to um, examine what aspects um, may already fall outside of the Competition Act and would not require um, an exemption per se. The second alternative is to have specific exemptions under Section 10 or block exemption, which is Section 1010 by the Minister. So we can grant exemptions where there's an application and there are certain categories set out in Section 10, which arguably the NHI bill might fall within, such as um, designated industries by the Minister. The Section 1010 is the Minister can provide block exemptions. By block exemptions, that means whole categories of agreements or practices um, rather than just the sort of piecemeal applications. And I mentioned earlier, this was used to good effect in the national state of disaster. I think what is important relative to legislation is also that, that Section 10 is done through regulation, which can be issued very rapidly. Uh, I think the healthcare exemptions was granted within a day after the the request came through from the Minister of Health, but it can also be changed rapidly and, and reversed if need be, if there is abuse. So I'd mentioned earlier the what we saw as maybe the abuse by the pathology labs in terms of that exemption um, and have called for the exemption that was granted to be narrowed now with the exclusion that the private parties can't come together to discuss um, even with the Department of Health pricing in the attempt to lower prices. So unlike legislation that takes time to change, um, regulation can be done re relatively rapidly. So just to sum up our submissions, um, we are of the view that a blanket exemption um, is not appropriate. Um, we don't fully understand what the rationale for that and it's not set out in the bill but it exposes the NHI to actual risks and in fact undermines what the NHI is trying to achieve. So in the interest of pursuing that objectives, we think it should be dropped. Um, but it's also unnecessary because there are mechanisms within the Competition Act 
they can provide that exemption where it is genuinely required and where we can engage with the NHIF or, or, um, or the National Department of Health um, as to why it's required and, and how it may be narrowly framed. If one reads our block exemptions for, for um, the pandemic in healthcare, they are quite specific as to which healthcare providers, what activities by them, whether it's, for instance, um, just looking at treatment protocols, but also specific in what is, what is actively excluded, such as um, discussions on price. So, and controls can be put in, such as the, the requirement for minutes and informing the commission or getting the permission from the minister to initiate um, and activate some of those exemptions. So regulations and exemptions can be far more closely worded. I think finally, we would just also um, recommend that there is some engagement around the, the issues raised by our own healthcare market inquiry. It is the case that there is a, a transition period, and it's also the case that the NHIF will contract with private parties. And so the structure of the healthcare market and how it evolves in this interim period, I think, is important um, to how successful the, the NHI is in bringing down prices and ensuring more universal access. And certainly we will continue to be active in merger control and enforcement um, in the healthcare area in the interim. So, Chair, thank you very much. That is the end of our presentation. As I indicated, we have a broader team to assist with, with answering questions that the Portfolio Committee may have. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Hodge. Uh, we appreciate you coming to make this presentation to us, you and your team. There are a number of members who wanted to raise questions with you, and I'm going to name them in the order that they will be raising those questions. It's Wilson, Tengwa, Zukacha, Yela, Clark, Harvard. If I have missed any honorable members, please indicate now. Chirwa Chepesen. So Chirwa is next, and then oh, I see on the platform also Munyai. Anyone else? Any other members would want to raise any questions? I'm covered. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you. So I'm going to repeat the order. Wilson, Tengwa, Sukacha, Yela, Clark, Harvard, Chirwa, Munyai, and Suwela. Thank you very much. Uh, you may start, honorable members. Good morning and thank you, Chair. Um, and good morning, uh, Mr. Hodge, and thank you to you and your team for the presentation. Um, definitely food for thought. I have a couple of questions. Um, firstly, the role of the minister in the NHI. So the minister literally is this in principle, the sole accounting officer of this entire development, this entire NHI. He gets to appoint the boards, the, the, the committees. The, he, he is literally the king of NHI, if I can put it in those terms. Now, in light of the recent Zondo report and the SIU report that was um, uh, made public yesterday, um, and, and I'm going to add on to that, the Digital Vibes debacle. Is this 
not a problematic issue. Um, should the minister be giving, being given some these kind of powers? Um, and, and will that indeed, and, and we've seen this happen, result in collusion, and we saw that on the Digital Vibes um, debacle. And if you don't agree that that is the right way to go, how would you suggest that this gets dealt with? Should the uh, parliament be involved in this? Should the committee be involved in interviewing committees? Um, that's, that's my sort of first question. And obviously, it's a huge concern in light of the, the current situation and what we've just seen. And secondly, you've raised some issues, uh, Mr. Hodge, where there is a kind of contradiction to the... the um, um, Recording the stopped. Um, so I, my question to you is, will the NHI, with all of these exemptions... Recording in progress. ...that we have discussed today meet constitutional muster because if it collides with other acts then that must be taken into consideration i thank you chair thank you chairperson let me create Honorable members and the committee, the the presenters competition committee commission. Thank you for the presentation, a detailed one, but I have two questions on this. In your presentation, sir, you emphasize the great risk of a blanket exclusion of the Competition Act in the bill. And you propose that there are appropriate alternatives that could be considered in drafting a more appropriate exemption which protects the public internal as well. Could you provide this committee with other examples as well. Second one, could you please, on some examples of mega prohibition that Europe provides for within the healthcare sector as indicated in your presentation? Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you, thank you very much, Chairperson. Uh, good, good morning, colleagues, and uh, let me also welcome the presentation. Just three questions from my side, Chairperson. The first one, uh, the Competition Commission mentioned that uh, the design elements of the NHI are unclear in the bill. It is general practice to have an enabling act with details contained in regulations. Do you expect that all design details to be spelled out in the act? Then the second one, uh, Honorable Chairperson, we assume uh, the Competition Commission are aware that this act should be read together with other legislation 
that is not excluded explicitly. All laws apply unless stated as such. The exemption of the Competition Act does not lead to the exemption of other laws that regulate the implementation of the Act. And the last one, how would you assume a public single purchaser and payer will be able to function under a system of free market competitiveness what would your alternative to this be? Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Uh, thank you very much, Chairperson. Uh, let me first welcome the presentation. Uh, I've got one question that I want to ask the presenter. Uh, do you acknowledge that there are other mechanisms available to address uh, corruption, collusion, etc. Uh, is the Competition Act the only way to prevent a possible uh, corruption? Thank you, Chair. Good morning, um, Chair, and thank you for the presentation. Um, I have a couple of questions to ask. Firstly, um, what would your suggestion be to reduce collusion across state contracts, including and including within healthcare? And how will you recommend to mitigate this risk, in particularly in the recent environment that we've seen that um, no prosecution has taken place in terms of what's been uncovered within the sector? Um, would you agree that the Competition Commission should form part of an oversight role as well? I'm linking in with an independent ombudsman over NHI. In what ways will the bill's registration requirements result in increasing unequal access to healthcare services? What recommendations can you provide for the bill's registration process if a member does not have a physical address? Do you feel that the bill adequately covers immigrant women in terms of healthcare access? In what way does the bill make provision for the for personal urgency for a person seeking health care? In your view, do you think the bill will result to delays in health care access, considering the need of adherence to referral pathways? And then um, finally, um, the MOU between the fund and the Comp Competition Commission will be helpful to ensure a close and cooperative working relationship. Um, would you recommend that this is factored in within the bill? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Chair, and also thank you for the presentation. Just have one question. Do you concede that addressing the recommendations of the HMI where necessary can occur in parallel with the incremental implementation of NHI. Thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. I'm sorry my system still persists to have um, challenges uh, with respect to video. Um, the comments made by the presenter, uh, James Hodge, on behalf of the Competition uh, Commission, 
um, appears to suggest that low and concentrated prices are not considered acceptable under NHI. What is the Competition Commission proposal around ensuring that services offered uh, by NHI are affordable? Uh, is it everybody rich in South Africa to, uh, to really uh, access to healthcare system under the environment of the two tier systems? If they, whether they want to the status quo to remain. Lastly, uh, did you, are you aware about the um, health market inquiry presented uh, by uh, Minister Patel and the Commission here in Parliament about the adverse adverse inquiry about the health market inquiry. If you remember that, by the Competition Commission, and why do how do you think those those adverse findings should be addressed? I can go to specifics, amongst others, including the overcharge, you know, of non cost non non medical cost services. Uh, as outlined by Health Market Inquiry. Lastly, Chair, it seems the, the presenter of the commission want universal health coverage uh, without NHI. Is this true? Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson, and thank you to, to our presenters today for their presentation. Um, I think it was very important. Um, I just want to ask, I have, I have like four, three, four questions. Um, and I want to ask what would then be like an appropriate exemption, if any, um, that wouldn't jeopardize what the NHI is trying to achieve. And I mean, part and parcel with this is, is, is what, are the, what are the reasons for the recommendation uh, that the blanket exemption from the Competition Act contained in the NHI bill is a concern? Is it because of vigilance against the possibilities of corruption? And if it is so, as part of the reasons, rather, can it just be overtly stated um, and and not said, you know, uh, in fog or in vague in, in a vague manner? Because it then becomes a very valid conversation, especially noting the submission that Section Three Five would exempt uh, a part of the as part of the submission by the Competition Commission that uh, Section Three Five would exempt all parties to the transaction and not just the NHIF, including private healthcare providers, pharmaceutical companies and medical equipment. Um, and also in this particular conversation, because I heard one of the members um, saying that this is not the case and this is not what necessarily the bill or that section particularly um, will affect. Can, can Chairperson, with, with your guidance, can I make a recommendation that, the, that Parliament's legal department comes to the portfolio committee and clarifies this issue? Um, of exemption uh, and which bills or laws or legislation it, it will particularly affect um, because I think it will be a grave mistake for the committee to pick up a conflict even if it is a minor conflict of this sort and not ensure absolute clarity um, on its effects during deliberations of such an important bill. Um, so yeah, Jefferson, you'll provide guidance on that particular part. But I think we do need to hear from Parliament's legal department on which bills in particular, this particular bill, or which legislation in completion it will affect 
um, not necessarily those that are captured in this particular bill, but they should also investigate and research it properly. Because now we're being we're, we're relying on interpretation of members, interpretation of uh, people that are making submissions, and not the actual uh, impact of what this bill could 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 be. Um, so please advise chairperson on this. But that's my recommendation that we have Parliament's legal um to come and and clarify us on these issues. Honorable Siwela. Honorable Siwela. Hey, Chairperson, thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I have one question to ask the presenter. I need clarity from the presenter regarding the exemption of the NH NHI fund from the Competition Act. Is it the Competition Commission that the bill implies that any of the suppliers to the fund will be exempt from the Competition Act? If so, what wording will you propose to ensure that the fund can fulfill its mandate? mandate. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, honorable members. Uh, did I leave anyone out? And if not, we'll also uh, just ask two questions to the uh, to Mr. Hodge and his team. The first one has to do with your very last sentence and your recommendation uh, to the Department of Health, where you're saying that the, uh, you're recommending that the Department of Health engage with and draw on the findings of the HMI as it works out the details of how the fund will function, especially given the similarities in the reforms proposed. So I'd like to hear from you whether you see these recommendations being applicable to the public health sector or to the future envisaged transformed unified national health system. And then I also want to, to hear from you about your proposal that the HMI recommendations be implemented in the entirety based on meeting some form of milestones for increased regulation of the private sector. What is your view about those milestones and whether uh, such milestones be achieved to meet the, date, the timelines as stipulated under Section 57 of this draft NHI Act, taking into account competing interest in budget allocations. Mr. Hodge, I think those are all of the questions which are raised by the members of the Portfolio Committee. We look forward to your responses. Thank you. Thank you, Chairperson. Um, I am going to ask our Chief Legal Officer, um, Mr. Bakimajenga, to, to pick up but some of the, the more legal questions, but maybe just to, to, to just clarify a few things that come out of the question. So I think Member, Member Chua asked whether, whether the reason for the exemption is around corruption. Um, and, and I think there was also a question as to 
to to whether um, you know what was the reason for our objection um, to this um, from Member Suella. So our concern is really about collusion, abuse of dominance by private healthcare providers, and that could be a broad range, which would, um, because of this wording, uh, likely be brought under the exemption. And so it is not about corruption within the, the NHIF or the possibility of that. It's, it's the abuse by private healthcare providers that by necessity have to contract with the NHIF as a single purchaser. So I hope that clarifies the case. And in terms of, of, of wording, our suggestion is not to include it in the bill. Our presentation makes clear that, that we think there are already um, appropriate mechanisms under the Competition Act. So were there to be elements that require some sort of um, some sort of, of exemption in the future, then then they can be adequately addressed through the Competition Act. There's no need to include it in the bill. And I think even just changing the wording within the bill creates risks of this overly broad exemption compared to what we have within the, the Competition Act. Um, but let me with that, um, bring in my colleague and and um, Mr. Majenga can pick up some of the legal questions and then I'll um, pick up the other remaining questions from the chair and the members. Uh, thank you, um, uh, James. Uh, morning chair and um, members of parliament. Um, I will first start with the question posed by uh, Honourable Member uh, Ms. Wilson. Uh, the question was in two parts. Uh, the first part of the question related to uh, the ministerial role uh, in the scheme uh, of the fund. Um, and so that issue of the ministerial role uh, in the overall uh, scheme of the fund uh, is really a policy uh, as well as a legislative uh, issue uh, that will really fall within the domain uh, of both uh, parliament itself uh, as well as um, uh, policy makers. Uh, so that uh, matter will be a matter that falls completely uh, outside um, uh, our, our domain as competition uh, regulators. So it's really a matter for the legislature as well as uh, uh, policymakers. Uh, in respect of the second question relating to the constitutionality uh, of the NHI itself, again, uh, this uh, again is a, a policy as well as a legislative issue. Uh, that uh, will have to be tested if and when uh, it is tested. Uh, uh, but we all know that uh, Section 27 uh, of the Constitution uh, does impose an obligation uh, on the state to take a reasonable uh, legislative and other measures within its resources uh, to achieve the progressive uh, realization of uh, the right uh, to health uh, care. Uh, so within that context, the NHI could be seen 
uh, as part of the measures to achieve uh, this objective of uh, universal uh, access uh, to health care. Um, I think uh, we also need to emphasize, and as uh, pointed out by my colleague, Mr. Hodge, uh, the Competition Commission uh, is not um, um, opposed to the NHI. In fact, we do uh, support uh, the NHI. Of course, the key issue for us, as uh, my colleague, Mr. Hodge, has pointed out, the key issue for us is the blanket uh, exemption uh, or exclusion uh, of the Competition Act, which will, of course, uh, lead to the kind of uh, ramifications and unintended uh, consequences that um, uh, Mr. Hodge uh, has uh, referenced. Uh, the second um, question, which um, can be characterized as a question uh, having uh, legal uh, implications uh, is the question uh, relating to uh, the alternative uh, pathways uh, to achieve an exemption uh, of certain elements uh, of the work of the NHI um, short of a blanket. Uh, exemption. And of course, as uh, uh, my colleague Mr. Hodge has pointed out, uh, both in the presentation as well as in his response, uh, there are, of course, uh, alternatives in the Competition Act itself, and uh, mainly uh, Section 10 uh, of the Competition Act does make provision uh, for the Competition Commission. Uh, to grant on a case-by-case basis uh, certain uh, exemptions. Uh, the Competition Act has also been recently amended uh, to make a provision for uh, block uh, exemptions uh, uh, by the Minister of the DTIC. Um, in fact, one of the most successful exemptions that uh, has been granted by the Commission in the healthcare sector relates to the exemption granted to the national uh, hospital network, uh, which was aimed at giving uh, smaller uh, hospital groups uh, uh, bargaining, uh, bargaining power. Uh, so there are certainly alternative pathways uh, to ensure that um, uh, certain aspects of the NHI work uh, do enjoy uh, some form of uh, an exemption. Uh, I think, James, to the extent that uh, I uh, have missed any questions which may have some uh, content, we can come back uh, to those questions. Uh, thank you. Thank you um, for addressing those legal questions. Um, let me work through the, the remaining questions as I see them. So um, I think Member Wilson has been addressed and then um, and it's, it's Honourable Sengwa, the which requested for some additional examples um, in terms of exemptions as well as merger control prohibitions within the European Union. 
So in terms of 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 other exemptions that that we have issued, um, I mean, some may stand out as 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 maybe in parallel. So I've mentioned the national state of disaster regulations, which sought to exempt certain coordination amongst healthcare providers, not of a price nature, but but more enabling them to respond to the pandemic. So in in terms of just um, the adequate distribution of, for instance, treatment protocols, staff to where the hotspots are in the pandemic, um, sharing of information around the, the testing volume of people with COVID and where they're located, and the ability to move staff between, for instance, clinics and hospitals in order to address. So, so there, there was um, elements of that, and it also included elements to allow um, funders to negotiate collectively to bring down the price of procurement, which has some parallels to, to what the NHIF intends to achieve. Um, we've also got in other sectors of the economy, um, in petroleum, we have an exemption to allow some meetings and sharing of information amongst oil refineries with the, um, with the minister in terms of just ensuring security of supply and to plan um, refinery shutdown. So that has a broader um, objective of achieving a, a public um, objective of security of supply for, for petroleum products. So those are some examples of exemptions. In terms of merger prohibition in the EU, our written submission um, does provide, I think, some examples um, in the relevant section around paragraph 23. Um, but there have been prohibitions of of mergers, there's also be prohibitions of acquisitions by pharmaceutical companies in order to temper market power, because ultimately, um, you know, as I indicated, our concern is really about um, the the competition amongst private suppliers, which will happen under the NHIF. The NHIF is a, a single purchaser designed to use that and allocate resources um, to those that are registered and fall under the, the universal access. So there still will be private suppliers and, and that is our concern. And if there is merger activity, then, then they will gain market power. And that includes global mergers for pharmaceutical companies, which remain a jurisdiction and a concern for, for the Competition Commission. Um, in terms of the question by member Sukacha, in the design elements, I mean, we, 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 it's not a criticism that some of the design elements are put forward to regulations in future. And, and we accept that obviously that is often in the design of legislation, but it's the fact that that is in the design of legislation and some things um, will be um, pushed to regulations in the future is the reason why we indicated it is better to once, once those regulations are in place um, and through a continued MOU with the, the National Health Insurance Fund, we can look at whether any exemptions are in fact required to enable the NHF or whether any parts of the Competition Act in particular restrict what they're trying to achieve or the manner in which they're trying to achieve it. Um, and, and again, I would decide that, you know, our exemption process that was accelerated through the pandemic involved engagements with different parties um, departments, ministers, in order to understand what the particular problem was and whether an exemption was required in order to achieve that. And where it was, it was granted willingly. Um, in terms of the question around, you know, how would a single 
payer and, and buyer function under competition, it's not about this competition for a single payer or buyer that we are concerned about. We're concerned about the competition amongst the healthcare providers that would supply that single um, buyer. So already, for instance, within the public health system, there is a single purchaser for, for public health, but we still see abuse through either collusion to the public health sector or excessive pricing of medicines. Um, and within the pandemic, there was also the opportunity for the public sector to, to outsource where there were capacity limitations in their own hospitals. So again, that involves a procurement process. So it's not we are objecting to, to that there's um, more than one payer, that it's more that it's a competition amongst the suppliers to, to um, the NHI. Um, and I think that that sort of addresses, um, you know, other other questions around um, around the, the the focus of our concern. Um, then Member Geller um, put a question about the different methods of addressing corruption and collusion. Our focus at the Competition Commission is on the collusion element, and in terms of if we look at the, the, the PPE procurement, we have been part of um, a number of institutions that have looked to address that. So we work closely with the SIU and where there is indications of corruption, the SIU takes it forward, but where it is abuse of, of private sector power or collusion in, in, um, in the in the state tender, then those cases are passed to the Competition Commission to, to prosecute and investigate. So, so there are different institutions that are involved in different mechanisms, obviously within the state. Our focus is predominantly on, on, on collusion. I think that then goes to the ne next uh, member, Clark, who, who asked us to suggest elements at reducing collusion in state and mitigating the risk. We already, undertake quite an extensive advocacy process and education process with with um, with organs of state and and those involved in procurement prices in order to how to detect collusion in in tenders so either similar director names or similar dress or similar pricing um, similar handwriting and we have a range of tools that we do um, educate and do that on an ongoing basis and in fact, that education can be successful in times because we do get state bodies referring to us um, alleged collusion by suppliers on the tender. What has also happened globally is that there's a move to, to sort of digital detection tools where um, the power of, of, of um, big data can be used to, to, to sort of red flag, in essence, um, tenders that look suspicious. So this might be where the pricing is far higher for the same product than, than what is achieved elsewhere in government or where, where um, there's a rotation of, of, of successful bidders for, for what is repeat work. So there are ways we, we can do that. In terms of, of um, the other question around the, the competition competition forming part of an oversight that is you know typically not our role we have recommended a, a memorandum of understanding 
there is no requirement that that has to sit in legislation. And we engage with memorandums of understanding with many agencies. For instance, we recently concluded one with the information regulator. So it's not required that it, it sit within legislation in order to, to take effect. Um, in terms of some of the other design elements of the bill, we have not engaged on that. Our focus has been predominantly on the on the competition aspects and how it impacts on, on the competition. Um, in terms of um, member Harvard, I, I would ask um, that the member just repeat the question. As, as I understood it, it was around um, negotiations in parallel with the, the transition period, but I, I, um, I would ask that that question is repeated and then we can certainly deal with it. I know we can do that now, um, Chairperson. Thank you very much, Honorable Harvard. I actually wrote down a little bit of what Honorable Harvard had raised, but let's hear her repeat that question for you. Honorable Harvard? Yes, yes, Chair. Can you repeat your question? Oh, thank you. The uh, let, let, let me see. Do, do you, sorry, do you consider that addressing the recommendations of the HMI where necessary can occur in parallel with the incremental implementation of NHI? Thank you. Um, thank you, Member Harvard, for that clarification. Um, and I think it's also a question that goes to the Chair's question. I mean, certainly we, we do think that some of the recommendations can be um, implemented in parallel. Um, some of those recommendations do go to ensuring that there is more robust competition um, amongst private healthcare providers, which would benefit the NHI ultimately as it takes over its single payer role. Although as a single payer, there may be more bargaining power, um, as we indicated, the, the healthcare sector is highly concentrated in many areas. And, and if we add the risk of, of as I said, exemption to that, um, it is, I think, addressing the structure of healthcare, private healthcare providers that may contract with the, the NHI is, is important. Um, I mean, within that, and, and maybe this is to the second question of the chair in terms of, of competing interests and, and budgets. I mean, I, th I think we have, um, as the commission and can continue to engage on what might be a prioritization. And, and certainly some of the recommendations do not require necessarily, um, public funding, um, but can, are, are, are mechanisms that also just affect the, the, the supply side that can, can more implicate the suppliers themselves than the um, than, than the public purse. So I think that is a process where, as we indicated in our submission, it would be useful to have that engagement, and we can have a robust debate about about what what is a priority and what should be um, accelerated and what is achievable within the, within the transition period. But even a lengthy transition period means that there will be continue to be effects of, of private sector 
conduct and, and adverse um, findings in terms of, of cost of healthcare in the interim that could have long-term effects as well. Um, in terms of um, Member Tzilitsi's questions, I think, you know, it is not the position of the Commission that, that, um, that the alternative and the existing system is necessarily a better means of achieving universal coverage. As we indicated at the outset from the presentation, we do support the NHI um, and the objectives of the NHI and wish to make it a success. And that's why we feel it is important to highlight through this presentation to the committee that, that the current exemption poses risks to the NHI itself. Um, it's not to, to be self-serving to the Competition Commission. We also want to see this as a success. And, and national health systems provide greater quality of access and have been successful in other parts of the world. So in terms of that, that's not our suggestion. Um, in terms of the adverse findings made by the HMI and how they may be addressed, you know, the HMI report does set out a series of recommendations of how to address those adverse findings. And there is also an executive summary which we can make available to the members, but it's also available on our website. And I won't go through it now because it is quite extensive but there are quite specific recommendations to address the different adverse findings that are arisen. And that would be uh, what we would also see as, as a subject of, if there is to be a discussion with the National Department of Health around prioritization and, and funding, um, it's exactly looking at that collection, you know. Um, I think in terms of then the chair's question on, on the HMI engagement, I mean, I would say, again, I, I think that it, the recommendations are, are quite extensive and affect both the demand and the supply side of the system through a transition and also start to affect not just how negotiations happen in the, in the meantime, which could be something that the NHI looks at in terms of how it regulates um, and at least is, is some input on that um, and the determination of things like PMBs. But... But I think as far as the recommendations go to the public sector, the HMI was targeted at, at private funding and the problem of high cost of private healthcare in this country. Ultimately, it has an implication for the public sector in the sense that the NHIF will take over the role of providing healthcare funding um, and purchasing on behalf of all citizens. And therefore, you know, any problems in their private healthcare market in terms of suppliers and providers that will will then start to impact on on the public sector. In the meantime, though, some of those um, adverse findings do already impact on the public sector through GEMS as a as a, a scheme that does support government employees um, and funds government employees healthcare. Obviously, some of the adverse elements already impact that um, GEMS. And and if one saw NHIF as a global GEMS, then then it would follow through as well. So we welcome that engagement and would welcome, you know, trying to ensure that that some of the healthcare system works better. I mean, we have learned, and this is in our impact report on some of the block exemptions we've granted, that some of the coordination at least um, and, and at least forums that were established during the pandemic have permitted some, some of the issues to be resolved um, and, and we would welcome I think working with the Department of Health and even the NHIF 
in that transition period to identify what could be implemented even by ourselves in order to take this forward. Um, Chairperson, I think I've covered all the questions that obviously yourself or the members can indicate if we have missed any. Um, I'd also just like to leave an opportunity for my colleague, Mr. Majenga, to come in if there's anything he feels I've missed or points he wants to make. Yeah, thank you, James. I think you have really covered um, at least uh, most of the questions which I've noted uh, very well. Uh, perhaps uh, just to re-echo uh, the point that um, uh, you made, uh, uh, which is to say that uh, we don't see any contradiction uh, between the recommendations uh, made in the HMI report uh, as well as uh, the initiative uh, to put in place a universal uh, healthcare uh, system uh, through the fund. If anything, uh, we see the two as likely uh, to be uh, complementary and to reinforce each other uh, rather than as a contractor. Uh, thank you, James. Thank you very much, Mr. Orange, and uh, your team for your presentation today. And thank you for also answering those questions of the members. We are looking forward to further engagement. Just on the question of Honorable Chirwa about getting an opinion from the Parliament's legal department, we are looking at, of course, getting some legal opinions, um, the follow-up processes uh, after the public hearings will also uh, involve getting an opinion from uh, some legal people, including the state law advisor, and uh, we will be taking that forward. Again, if you maybe want to say a few words in closing, we will then, after that, move on to the Commission for Gender Equality. Thank you, Chair. Maybe just in closing to reiterate that, that you know, the Commission does support the NHI initiative um, and its objectives. Where there are exemptions that may be required, we are more than happy to work with and use the framework of the Act. That is probably a far more flexible and low-risk option so it doesn't deny the opportunity for exemptions to happen, but it provides it within the framework of our act and doesn't tie our hands to address collusion, abuse of dominance amongst private healthcare providers. So we would recommend that even in looking at the options that, that the exemption is, is pulled out of the NHI bill and that um, the commission works with the NHIF and the Department of Health to identify suitable exemptions where appropriate as we have done in the past and will continue to do. Thank you, Chair Bird. Thank you very much. You're welcome to stay on or to leave the platform. It uh, is a public platform, so you're very welcome to listen to the other presentations. Honourable members, we are going to receive a presentation from the Commission for Gender Equality. We will go straight into it. And we have on the platform Mueng Detlache, uh, inform me if I pronounce his name correctly. You're very welcome uh, to show your face and uh, introduce your team and go straight into your presentation. Thank you. 
Thank you, Chair. Uh, you have pronounced my name very well. Uh, uh, my team, I'm with uh, Mamelo Matthews. She is one of the legal officers here at the Commission for Gender Equality. And also, we are uh, supported by our chairperson, Ms. Tamara Matebula. Uh, good morning to all the members and, uh, and the honorable members of the parliament. Uh, I will first like to share my presentation. Just a moment so that I can share my presentation before I can proceed. Chair. Am I audible enough, Chair? You are audible enough. We can see you and your presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. I will be going through my presentation. Uh, I will start with uh, our introduction. Um, the Commission for Gender Equality is an independent statutory body established in terms of the chapter. The, my apologies, the Commission for Gender Equality is an independent statutory body established in terms of Chapter 9 of the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa, 1996. The Commission has a mandate to promote and protect gender equality in government, civil society, and the private sector. To this end, the Commission for Gender Equality Act 89 of 1996, as amended, gives the Commission the power to monitor and evaluate policies and practices of organs of state at any levels. Statutory bodies and functionaries, public bodies and authorities and private business enterprises and institutions in order to promote gender equality and make any recommendations that the commission deems necessary. I will move on to the second slide. The commission also has the powers to evaluate any act of parliament, make recommendations to parliament or any legislation with regard to any law affecting gender equality or the status of women and may recommend to parliament the adoption of new legislation which will promote gender equality and the status of women. The commission welcomes the opportunity to make inputs on the National Health Insurance Bill of 2019. Uh, I will move to the contextual background check. Uh, women's reproductive health needs are different from those of men, and as such, a one-size-fits-all approach will not be uh, desirable. Uh, when looking at this aspect, Chair, uh, women require health services more than men. Uh, I will give an example. Women need uh, health centers uh, for family planning. They go there during their pregnancy period. They also go there to health centers after giving birth to get medication for their children and others. The NHI bill has the pro propensity to improve women's health if the, best if the best interventions are carefully assessed and costed provided on a universal basis from the outset. In so doing, women and girls will be direct beneficiaries of the national health insurance once it is implemented. So, uh, there is a, a need in order for the NHIB to ensure that uh, women are prioritized in this uh, bill. 
Consequent to Section 27.1 of the Constitution, women, children, lesbians, gays, bisexual, transsexual, intersexual, queer, asexual, have the right to have access to health care services, including reproductive health care. Uh, this uh, it goes along with Section 9 of the Constitution, which uh, provides for equality. And it, uh, in short, it provides that everyone is equal before the law and has the right to equal protection and benefit of the law. And as indicated above, uh, women requires the services of health more than men. And uh, if they are denied the healthcare services, they will struggle more as they are primary caregivers by nature. Uh, the commission records that uh, goal three of the United Nations 2030 sustainable development goal obliges the state to ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. Uh, in short, uh, health is one of the key points, Chair. If one is not healthy, he will struggle to even acquire knowledge, he will struggle even to take care of his loved or her loved ones. Some of the goals are to reduce maternal mortality, ensure universal access to sexual and reproductive health care services, including family planning, information and education, and the integration of reproductive health into national strategies and programs by 2018. Whilst health care services are provided free of charge in South Africa, monetary cost of travel to local clinic pose a significant barrier for vulnerable segments of the population, specifically women, children, lesbians, gays, bisexual, transsexual, intersexual, queer, asexual, LGBTIQIA+, mentally disabled persons, and persons with disability, leading to overall poorer health. Women are caregivers by nature. They, they care for their loved ones and for their entire families. Health facilities should be easily accessible to women. And in doing that, uh, it will lessen the burden on women to take care of their loved ones. And if uh, health care services are far away from women, uh, they will not be able to take care of their loved ones. For an example, women, they take care of the mentally disabled in rural areas. They take care of persons with disability. If the health facilities are very far away, women, they will struggle and they will have to bear the burden of traveling costs. For example, in 2016, the commission received a complaint from a Vincral community where it was argued that the nearest local clinic is 45 kilometers away from their community. This results into uh, a ride being delayed because the healthcare service center is far away and is not easily accessible and women, they cannot uh, get the benefit of realization of their right to healthcare service. And it should be taken into account that a right denied is a, a right delayed is a right denied. As such, access to healthcare services was costly and further placed women to be more vulnerable to all forms of abuse, including gender-based violence. Uh, they must take care of their loved ones as well as, uh, as taking care of their, themselves. Women, they are caregivers 
And even if in a situation whereby there are victims of gender-based violence, women are supposed to be there, support those victims as they are caregivers for their, their entire family. From this premise, it is submitted that access to healthcare service to rural women is fundamental in realizing healthcare rights of the vulnerable groups. The Constitutional Court decision in Subramani, this Minister of Health, uh, 1998, Volume 1, SA 765, Constitutional Court provides uh, examination of the above aforementioned constitutional right imposed on the state to provide quality medical services to citizens. The challenge with this uh, uh, case is that most often women, whenever they try to access healthcare services, they come across challenges such as availability of resources. The Department of Health will inform women that due to availability of resources, they are unable to make them realize their right to healthcare services. And such it will be deemed as a, the right to healthcare services is limited in terms of section 36 of the constitution. Uh, focused on comments on the NHI bill, the commission note the contents of the proposed national health insurance bill. However, uh, it would like to make recommendations to the commission to the committee as follows uh, purpose and application of the act while the nhi seeks to promote the achievement of universal access to quality health care service for all in the republic of south africa it fails to address existing human rights violations in the healthcare sector such as structural violence against women and girls manifesting itself in various forms such as refusal by healthcare workers to administer contraceptives to girls and young women, forced and coerced sterilization of human immunodeficiency virus positive women, violence against pregnant women, the elderly and other vulnerable groups. In short, violation it includes many aspects uh, such as if one cannot easily access healthcare centers, it's a violation of his rights as the state fails to provide such right. Uh, the other example, it will be um, the right to privacy. If uh, one visits the rural communities, you will find that healthcare centers, uh, patient doctor confidentiality is not practiced there as the structure is too small or the structure is of container. Therefore, other people can hear what is going on inside the consultation room. And the other challenge at the rural place, it will be uh, the issue of transportation. If healthcare centers are very far away from uh, the community members, community members will have to bear the cost of transportation. Uh, the NHI is written in heteronormative, normatively biased language using pronouns such as he or she, clearly leaving out gender non-confirming individuals who too are healthcare service users. In other ways, the NHI is gender blind and is gender non-responsive. The NHI must not be gender blind and it must include everyone as it, state, it is stated in, in the constitution in terms of section nine and section 27 of the constitution.
access to care services, registration as users, the requirement for proof of habitual place of residence as stated in the NHI as a prerequisite for user registration has a potential to exclude street dwellers who are who by virtue of being street dwellers do not have such proof. That that is that is in contravention with section nine, which states that everyone has the right to equality, and section twenty-seven, which states that everyone it does not discriminate whether someone is a street dweller or someone has a fixed address, and that will also uh, pose a, a danger in exclusion of other people, such as people who are residing at informal settlements. And those people who are residing at informal settlements, they don't have what we call allocated fiscal addresses. Therefore, it will not be easy for them to be able to uh, have proof that they have that proof of residence and they can access healthcare centers. This requirement will further contribute to the high rates of maternal deaths as pregnant women living in the streets could be excluded from accessing healthcare services. Even people uh, from other places, such as rural places, they will struggle due to the fact that uh, traditional leaders, they won't recognize them uh, as some traditional leaders, they still practice what is called patriarchy. The above mentioned concern also applies to persons who reside in rural areas where often traditional leaders are called upon to provide proof of residence in certain complaints complaints to the CG, persons such as the LGBT, IQA, unmarried women and widows often encounter obstacles and prejudice when seeking the proof of residence from the traditional leaders. Some traditional leaders will simply indicate that they only recognize men and by so doing, they don't take into account that uh, they are excluding women and other members of the community and such is patriarchy and it's against section 9 of the constitution for example the bill states that a user seeking health care service purchased for his or her benefit by the fund from an accredited health care service provider or a health establishment must present proof of registration to that health care service provider or a health establishment when seeking those health care services even this section eight is still uh, gender blind and is not gender responsive as it reads uh, or as it has pronouns such as his or her. It excludes the members of the LGBTQIA plus communities. In addition, the NHI excludes persons, particularly women who are traveling to South Africa in compliance with the Immigration Act. Uh, this one is a challenge because the constitution is read as everyone, and everyone it includes foreign nationals who visit, who comes for, who comes to our country to look for employment. Therefore, by excluding them from the NHI, it is unfair discrimination which cannot be justified in terms of Section 36 of the constitution. Uh, the bill does not address how much women will be assisted if they require medical attention. The NHI states that to get medical attention, the patient must be registered as a healthcare user. And to be registered, they will have to comply with the requirements of section five, sub section five of the bill. Uh, 
of which it is difficult for one to comply with and the women they will struggle as they will not have any resolution in order to be able to access their health care services these groups of persons would not comply and it is not clear from the nhi how they would access treatment and care if they cannot be able to access health care services due to non-compliance uh, there is no remedy of where they can appeal uh, this decision of the nhi the, refer the reference to promotion of equality and prevention of unfair discrimination act 4 of 2000 under paragraph 6 e is welcomed however the nhi fails to articulate what measures will be put in place to prevent the discrimination on all the grounds stated by the the Bebuda. Uh, section 6 of the Bebuda it, it states that uh, no one can be discriminated uh, without any justification this is against the backdrop realization and that most vulnerable groups continue to face multiple discrimination at the healthcare services centers uh, on the stated grounds. Example includes the life ACD many tragedy, a woman tied to a chair in Mamelodi Hospital and mentally ill patient bent in bent worth hospital and others. It is fundamentally important that the monitoring and evaluation. Uh, be explored in this regard to ensure the protection of human rights. Healthcare services coverage. While the NHI provides for the user to receive the healthcare services that the user is entitled to, the Commission is concerned about the multiple struggles uh, to access gender appropriate continuum healthcare services by the transgender persons, intersex persons, girls, women in South Africa. This section of the NHI states that for treatment must be funded if a healthcare service provider demonstrates that no medical necessity exists for the healthcare service in question. There, there must be a valid reason for such provision. No cost effective intervention exists for the healthcare service as determined by a healthcare technology assessment, or the healthcare product or treatment is not included in the formula, except in circumstances where complementary list has been approved by the minister. Uh, this section has the potential to create an environment leading to denial of services and violation of human rights given that healthcare service provision is often decided upon by other officials who often use discretion to refuse or not to recommend healthcare services for vulnerable groups such as transgender persons, intersex persons, girls and women. If such discretion is exercised to refuse healthcare services, it is unfair. The complainant must have a way of appealing such decision and they must first receive education on how to lodge their complaint on refusal to access such healthcare uh, services. The NHI needs to state at least the basic tenets of the formula to avoid misuse. The current primary healthcare service package has the tendency to concentrate on women of children of childbearing age and exclude before and post childbearing healthcare service services as a priority. 
in the absence of women's health policy to provide guidance, the NHI must include basic tenants women's health care services from cradle to grave sequence. Uh, section 6 of the NHI, a user who is dissatisfied with these reasons for the decision contemplated in Section 5D may lodge an appeal in terms of Section 43. The issue with lodging an appeal is that in most instances, uh, people, they require health services as on an urgent basis. Therefore, appeal it will take long and their right to access such services, it will be delayed and it will be denied in most instances as medical attention is required on an urgent basis. With regard to the provision above, the CGE's view is that while the NHI provides the mechanism for dissatisfied individuals to lodge an appeal in terms of Section 43, the NHI is not clear on cases when the person seeking healthcare services is incapable of making such decisions. For example, persons uh, living with severe mental incapacity or minor children. Furthermore, furthermore, the NHI states further that a user must access, must first access healthcare service at the primary healthcare level as the entry into the healthcare system must adhere to the referral pathways prescribed for healthcare services providers or health establishments and is not entitled to healthcare services purchased by the fund. If he or she fails to adhere to the prescribed referral pathways, the above provision is prejudicial to pregnant women who prefer to engage their regular gynecologist or obstetrician and skip a general practitioner. This will also have a negative impact on one's right to have a choice of which medical practitioner or which health cancer care center he or she wants to visit. Uh, according to this provision, it means that the fund will not cover the cost. However, it is unclear whether the medical scheme can cover cost. Uh, cost coverages. While this section of the bill seeks to put assure the health services user that the service will be available free at the point of care, it further sets a very stringent measures under which a person seeking health services will have to pay for services. A person or a user, as the case may be, must pay for health care services rendered directly through a voluntary medical insurance scheme or through any other private insurance scheme. If that person or a user is not entitled to health care services purchased by the fund in terms of the provision of this act, fails to comply with the referral pathways by a healthcare service provider or a health establishment, seeks services that are not deemed medically necessary by the benefits advisory committee or seeks treatment that is not included in the formula. It is observed that the NHI fails to articulate what should happen in cases of emergency and persons who face structural problems to register as users and does not mention the basic tenets of the formula and takes away personal agency of the person seeking uh, healthcare services. As I've indicated above that, uh, if one seeks medical attention, it, that person will be seeking medical attention on an urgent basis. 
and therefore it is difficult for a person to for one to uh, follow all the necessary procedures in order to be able to have access to medical facilities and such it will have a negative impact on the right to health. For constitution and composition of the board, the commission knows that the proposed total of 11 board members, the commission pro proposes that the composition of, 11, of the 11 board members take into account consideration of diversity and be reflective of, of the demographics of South Africa. Uh, one should take into account that um, community members should be catered for and uh, in order for one to be able to cater for community members, it should be taken into account that the board members, the 11 board members, must be in a position to represent all the members of the community, uh, regardless of their gender, sexual orientation, race, and it must also include persons with disability uh, in order to ensure that they are being catered for and they are not excluded. Uh, it is submitted that uh, a diversified board will be able to serve the interest of all South Africans irrespective of their gender, uh, race, or sexual orientation. A contracting unit for primary health care. A contracting unit for primary health care must be comprised of a district hospital, clinics, or community health centers and the ward-based outreach teams and a private provider organized in horizontal networks within a specified geographical sub-district area. In terms of this provision, the Commission observes that most community care workers in South Africa are women and it is espoused that uh, cautionary measures must be taken when community health care workers are contracted to ensure that they are paid appropriate wages that do not undervalue care their work and the contribution made by them. Uh, community, uh, it should be taken into account that community members uh, receive uh, health care services from uh, women. And in short, women, by providing such health care services to the community members, uh, there must be an assurance that women, they are encouraged and they receive uh, proper training and they receive proper motivation in order to be able to execute their duties. They must be properly trained to execute their duties, to, under, to understand applicable relevant legislation such as Sterilization Act 44 of 1998, National Health Care Act 61 of 2003, and this, in short, it will also avoid the issues or challenges of the Department of Health receiving state claims based on medical negligence, for example. For rural residents to have access to healthcare centers, necessary and appropriate healthcare services must be available and obtainable in a timely manner. Certain factors must be considered for communities in rural areas, such as financial means of the community to pay services. And the financial means must also include transportation uh, costs whereby uh, healthcare centers are far away from community members. Means to reach and use services such as transportation to healthcare centers. In, more, in many rural areas, you'll find that there is what we call shortage of transport 
and a patient will be in a, will need medical attention on an urgent basis. Therefore, such patient will not be able to access healthcare centers on an urgent basis due to lack of transport, whereby healthcare centers are far away from their communities. A lack of doctor-patient confidentiality, which often encroaches on the right to dignity and privacy of rural women. As I've indicated before, the structures of healthcare centers in the rural areas, it's not in conditions that uh, it can provide for the right to dignity, the right to privacy, as uh, one can hear the conversation between the doctor and the patient sitting in another room while they are consulting. Therefore, the right to privacy will be contraveyed. The commission knows that various complaints where rural women alleged that nurses disclose their HIV status in the corridors. As such, most patients lose confidence in their healthcare services. That issue, it must also uh, be addressed with education. There must, the NHI must ensure that community members, they receive awareness campaigns or workshops or education on how to report uh, health practitioners who goes around and uh, breach what you call a doctor-patient confidentiality. To this end, it is recommended that the NHI provides oversight of the standard of services rendered by healthcare practitioners at rural areas. Uh, Office Health Products Procurement, Section 7, the provision of this section are subjected to public procurement laws and policies of the Republic that gives effect to the provisions of Section 217 of the Constitution, including the Preferential Procurement Policy Framework Act uh, 5 of 2000 and the Broad-Based Black Economic Empowerment Act 53 of 2003, in line with the above provision, it should be understood that women are both consumers and the providers of services. So in a nutshell, women, they must be prioritized as they are the ones who are in desperate need of healthcare services and as they are also the ones who administer or who are most healthcare workers and they provide such health services to the community. Therefore, the commission submits that the procurement of health products must set aside a quota for women-owned entities to, to fast track the implementation of the Preferential Procurement Policy Framework Act of 2000. Uh, in conclusion, the commission finds that the NHI holds prospects to correct impediments hampering women's access to quality health care, including addressing women's uh, reproductive health care, health rights in South Africa. Uh, that will be all from our presentation chair. Thank you. Thank you very much for your presentation. We, uh, we have found it quite interesting and uh, the members would like to engage with that presentation. I have the following members who would like to raise some points with you. It would be Honorable Chirwa, Honorable Gela, Ismail, Sukacha, Avad, Munyai, Zuela. I'm going to repeat it's um, Chirwa, Gela, Ismail, Sukacha, Avad, Munyai, Zuela. Thank you very much. You may 
start honorable members. Thank you very much, um, Chairperson, and thank you to the CGE for for their presentation. Um, on, on my particular side, I think they raised issues that we had raised before, um, and it's very refreshing to hear um, the same sentiments that are often missed by, 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 other, by other people. Now, noting the issues that you have raised, which are very, very fundamental, um, beyond them being ideological and philosophical, they are very fundamental issues. Right, because if you are stating the issue of the referral system, the issue of infrastructure, the issue of access, um, because in some of the things you're noting, you're actually alluding to the fact that it's people living in cosmopolitan areas that will be most benefited by this particular bill. And not necessarily those who are living in informal settlements, who are living in townships, and especially those living in rural areas. And in, in, in particular, marginalized groups as is. So now noting all these things that exclude people, that exclude women, that exclude the LGBTQI, that exclude people uh, with disabilities, um, do you then support the, this bill? After noting everything you've said as the Commission of Gender Equity, I want to know if uh, these particular differences and points of conflict are not fundamental enough to not, are not fundamental enough for you to not support this bill um, and, and, and are not necessarily uh, fundamental enough for you to either, you know, take a very strong point of position against or for this bill, um, firstly. And then number two, I'm digressing a bit, um, but I'm going to ask the question nonetheless because you guys are here now. Um, now, there's been numerous developments regarding the issue of uh, forced sterilization um, uh, that, that happened under the ANC government to women, Black women in particular, um, who were forcefully sterilized. Um, and, and part of this process of trying to seek justice, the CGE played a very pivotal role. But my concern that I want to raise uh, in this particular meeting, I want to ask, why then noting how uh, you know, women were violated and how this particular act is, is a crime against humanity on an international level, would you then send the very same women to go collect evidence from the very people that were their perpetrators? Is it not equivalent to asking a rape victim to go and collect evidence at their place of trauma, at their place of torture, um, with no protection at all, but just them being told to go and fetch evidence, to go and fetch files for the CGE to do the work that it can be capacitated to do outside of that particular back and forth and putting the lives of victims in jeopardy again, sending them to the very same places where they were harmed um, to go and collect to go and collect evidence. I think noting the kind of language you use in addressing women's issues, you cannot be the very same people that send HIV positive black women who are ostracized, alienated, and tortured because of their race, because of their gender, and because of their HIV status. Then send those women to go and collect files from doctors for you to continue with investigations or to continue with this process. Especially because as a chapter nine institution, you did not even defend. Um, your own uh, uh, report, uh, like what the public protector did with the with the with the Nkandla report, um, by ensuring that it it sees the light of day. You guys have not done that as the CGE, and in fact, if it had not been for the intervention of the EFF, this whole case would still be flat on its face as it has been over the past years. So I just want clarity on those particular two points, and then I'll be fine. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Uh, thank you, uh, Chairperson. Uh, let me also welcome uh, the presentation. Uh, I've got uh, 
two questions that I want to ask uh, to the presenter. Uh, it appears that you would uh, prefer that, that access uh, to healthcare services uh, within the NHI environment is not uh, coordinated uh, from the primary healthcare level to higher uh, levels of care. Are you aware that the use of a referral system will ensure cost effectiveness and long-term sustainability of, uh, of the fund? My other question, under chapter three of your submission, uh, CGE, uh, appears to believe that emergency medical services are not uh, accommodated for in the NHIB, and in particular, the members who fall under the outside and ad advancy of a CGE will have no access to the EMS under NHI. I would like to point out that in reading the bill, EM, EMS is covered in various sections of the bill, of the NHI bill, such as section 32, uh, subsection 2, 35, and 39, and others. My question, therefore, is what makes uh, CGE believe that emergency medical services will not be provided to individuals uh, failing within, uh, falling within uh, their constituency uh, as alluded to under chapter three of the CGE submission to this uh, committee. Thank you, Chair. Good morning to everyone and thank you for your presentation. I just have a few uh, clarity seeking questions. My first question is, do you feel that the NHI will not be effective due to a shortage of enough healthcare workers or facilities? And it should only be implemented once enough healthcare workers are appointed and facilities you know, are provided. My second question, I know you're stating a lot of issues affecting the healthcare system currently. So are you suggesting that to ensure effective healthcare services are, are, are provided, you know, uh, it, it must be specified on the NHI bill or the wording of the bill. My third question, do you feel, you know, special need patients like the life acidity tragedy as an example are not effectively covered by the NHI bill? That's what I'm gathering from your presentation. How or what would you like specified in the bill to properly provide for this? My fourth question, you highlighted I diverse, you know, you highlighted that the board must be very diverse and etc. Do you feel or recommend the private sector or entities be included on the board to improve the accountability of the board and subsequently, you know, healthcare services on the ground? And my last question, I'm gathering from your inputs on your presentation that you feel, you know, the NHI does not allow for equal access to healthcare uh, services, you know, and not enough equality in healthcare services as well. So, in your opinion, is this bill all inclusive? Is it sustainable? And ultimately, would you then say that you support the NHI bill 
considering all the issues you've raised in your presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chairperson. <clears throat> Let me also welcome the presentation. Uh, Chair, just uh, one question from my side. Uh, the presenters seek more clarity on how the fund will prevent discrimination on all the grounds as stated by the promotion of uh, equity and pre prevention of unfair discrimination act. I want that clarity. Now, my question is, you have considered the mechanism proposed in section 43, section CK and section, sorry, section 6K and section 6L. Will these um, sections not strengthen the provision of section 6E? And a second question, do you need further details about the mechanism proposed in section, sorry, in chapter nine of the bill? That is section 42, 43, 44, and 45. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Just one question. Would you be satisfied with a women's health policy? as the details of all these important issues can't be included in this kind of legislation. Thank you. Honorable Siwela. Honorable Siwela. Thank you, Chairperson. Let me also welcome the presentation. I have one question to, to ask CCCGA. Um, can the CGA presenter expand on the points made around Section 4 of the bill, which makes provisions for the conditions under which treatment may not be funded under, under NHI, CGE also seems to believe that Section 4 of the bill discriminates against the provision of health care to transgender and intersex persons, as well as girls and women. May I get some clarity with regards to which exact parts of section four of the bill are seen to exclude the above mentioned categories of users. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. I'm sorry that, uh, you know, I'm trying to drive to an area where there's a proper network. I must say, Chairperson, we appreciate the, the valuable input into the bill. The concern about the organization that presented before us about street toilet is, is noted. Section five of the bill state that open code 
when applying for registration as a user, the person concerned must provide his or her biometrics and such as other information as may be uh, prescribed, including fingerprints, photograph, proof of uh, a habitual place or residence. Uh, do you not perhaps think that this section can be further elaborated to cater for such circumstances in the regulation of the bill? The same applies to the travelers according to Immigration Act. Can that details not be included in other regulations? Because so far as I understand within the bill, it has been indicated that roles and functions that are not included in the bill will be covered into the into the regulation uh, you seek oh yeah that that will be my uh, the same applies to the travelers according to them i said those issues so i would also want to find i want to find out from the from the uh, the organization whether whether they are comfortable with the two-tier system to, to continue to persist, which really indeed, in, 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 it is a scientific issue that, you know, the, the 8%, the 8% of the private medical aid schemes continue to access over 400 billion rand, which covers 16% of the population, while the rest, don't have access to that money. What is their view? Thank you. Thank you very much, honorable members. I would raise two questions with you. And I think these will be the last questions from the uh, committee. Now you have expressed anxiety about exclusion of medically necessary healthcare services for the LGBTQIA+. Uh, we, I acknowledge um, your anxiety about this, but I want to refer you to section 25, which talks about the benefits advisory committee, which will have representation from different stakeholders, including advocacy groups. Will this representation not highlight healthcare services for the group I had mentioned? And is it not possible that when such exclusion happens, and you have actually alluded to this, that users can follow the mechanisms outlined in section 6E, K and L, along with the complaints mechanism outlined in chapter nine of the bill. And in continuation of uh, this, um, your, your, um, let me just give me a second and let me just grab my page. You're, you're highlighting the accommodation of the LGBT. QIA plus in the provisions of the bill once again refers 
but I'm getting a sense that most of the comments made by yourselves do not necessarily contain the recommendations in as far as the improvement of the contents of the bill in its current form is concerned. So I would like to hear from you as the presenter some recommendations on how sections eight of the bill should read in order to reflect an, an inclusion of this community. Thank you very much. I think that too, those would be the last questions. If you can please respond to those questions, we'd very much appreciate it. Thank you, Chair. Uh, I will start with uh, the question which was raised by Honorable Naledi Chiro uh, that uh, does CGE support the bill? From all the challenges that we see from the bill, the CGE support the bill. Uh, the CGE supports the bill. Uh, in short, the challenges they may be cured. At this stage, is still a bill. If we have some challenges, there must be negotiations. Uh, it's not like by having challenges, we do not support the bill. We are just uh, citing the challenges at this point. If challenges can be cured or there may be a remedy for such challenges, therefore, we won't have any problem as the CGE. Uh, I will move to the second question of post sterilization uh, when the honorable when honorable uh, Naredi Chiro indicated that uh, isn't it wrong to send the victim to the very same perpetrator who abused uh, the said victim the issue of forced sterilization i will say is the burning issue based on so many aspects such as uh, i will make an example a complainant will come to cge and when such a complainant comes to CGE, she will come with information that is not full. She will say that I was forcefully sterilized, uh, but not give the date, will not give full information on the details of which year, which hospital, uh, when did you realize that you were forcefully sterilized. That is why in most instances, complainants, they are requested to furnish CGE with further information. It's not like CGE is saying that the complainant must go and uh, request information from the perpetrator. We want information as CGE that can enable the CGE to be in a better position to investigate the complaint. In short, if you are given a uh, not full information or sufficient information to investigate. You will struggle when you request a, a copy of the complainant's medical file because you won't have a fire reference number. That's the first thing. You won't have the name of the hospital. You won't have the district. You won't have the year. And uh, it is known that whenever you request for a medical file at the hospital, you will follow a long procedure that needs a lot of information. If you fail to produce such information when you request uh, a medical file, therefore at a later stage, you will never get such a file and then it will defeat the purpose of your investigation as you will not be able to come to a conclusion or a findings of what really happened. 
before you can go ahead with such a complaint. It's not like CGE is saying that uh, victims must go back to their perpetrators to get information. We only request in additional information from the victim so that we can follow up on an investigation. Uh, I think I have uh, managed to answer all the first part of her questions. I will go to the second um, questions from Honorable Kela. Um, the question was to with uh, access to healthcare services uh, and uh, whether is the NHI not primarily coordinate uh, the issues of referral and the uh, issues uh, regarding the long-term uh, sustainability of the fund. Uh, the referral system is important. It is noted by the CGE. The referral system is important because it assists on uh, allocation of resources and such allocation of resources will uh, also support the issue of long-term sustainability of the national health insurance bill. Uh, we don't have a major issue with referrals. The only issue with referrals is whereby, uh, for example, patients is referred from a, a rural place uh, to go to an urban place to meet up with a specialist. And in most instances, such patients won't have a availability of resources to reach the urban areas. And that is the issue with uh, our, our part on the referrals system. Uh, the second question was on the emergency medical services. Uh, when we indicated that uh, uh, complainants or patients won't receive emergency medical services, and uh, the honorable member indicated that it is catered for in terms of section 32. Emergency, it comes at a point whereby, uh, for example, uh, if there are no availability of resources, such right of receiving your or re of realizing your right to health care services is denied because when you are from a very far point when one is from a far point to reach healthcare services that person will never be able to uh, realize her right to medical services and uh, such right it won't be exercised due to that it was uh, requested on an agency basis and it was not provided uh, by the uh, healthcare services centers uh, i will go to I did not manage to capture all the questions. I think my colleagues will assist me in uh, answering other questions. Uh, the other issue was, uh, the other questions they came from uh, uh, is Honorable Ismail, whereby uh, she asked that uh, do we support the bill as the CGE? We indicated that we supported the bill. I did not manage to capture some of uh, other questions. I will go to the question of uh, Honorable Sokacha when he indicated that uh, the, uh, we, SCGA, we submitted that the fund uh, must prevent all discrimination. And he indicated that we must consider the mechanism in terms of Section 43 and Section 6 
uh, we are not saying that the fund, the bill on its entirely is discriminate. We are simply indicating that at some, some of the sections, they don't cater for everyone as the constitution indicates that everyone. So the discriminatory part, it comes into some parts whereby uh, everyone, the word everyone in the constitution is not applied in this uh, bill. And the issue of uh, us saying that is because uh, when you say everyone, uh, when, for example, one person goes to seek medical health services, uh, that person will be discriminated based on his gender or sexual orientation. That is our issue with uh, the discrimination. Uh, I will go to the other questions, uh, just a moment, to look at my questions. Uh, I will go to Honorable Chilis's uh, questions regarding Section 5, sub, sub paragraph 5, the rules uh, which are not covered by the bill. Uh, indicated that, uh, it is indicated that uh, those rules will be covered in the regulations. At this point, we are trying to uh, make uh, the NHI bill uh, to be in a position to cater for all the rules. We are not really saying that at this point, uh, the bill must cover everything. We are only alluding some other aspects whereby the bill did not manage to cater for. Uh, I will go to the issue of uh, medical aid holders, whereby Honorable uh, Chilis indicated that it only covers for 16% of the population. Uh, the, our issue with uh, the, the medical aid holders, uh, we SCGE, our presentation was mainly focused on the members of the previously disadvantaged groups. Therefore, uh, we really wanted the NHI bill to also include them whenever uh, they provide or they want to provide services for everyone. The last questions that I've tried to capture is that one of uh, the, the ones that came from you, Chair. Just a moment. Uh, Chair referred to the CGE to uh, section 16K uh, and section 16L of the Bill, if I'm not missed, if I'm not missed, taking just a moment. Uh, the advisory committee that will uh, section 23, 25, and then went to section 16 of the bill. Just a moment, check. Section uh, 25 it, uh, provides for the benefits of the advisory committee. Uh, we SCGE, we want the advisory committee to cater for all the needs of everyone and not discriminate anyone. And we also want the bill to ensure that uh, it, it does not, uh, it does not uh, exclude anyone in terms of uh, the environment where that those people are staying at. 
Uh, I'll ask one of my colleagues uh, to answer some of the questions that I might have committed to answer. Uh, Ms. Melo Matthews. Thank you, Chair. Is your colleague joined? Good morning. Um, good afternoon to the committee and to everyone present. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I feel that um, my colleague has answered all the questions. If there are any that we may have missed, um, may I just ask for a reminder, please, as to questions that the, um, the committee feels has not been answered? Am I Thank audible? you very much. Yes, you're very much audible. Is there... Uh, any questions that you feel have not been answered? Maybe just a reminder of those questions and then I can um, answer them to the best of my ability. Well, I haven't particularly noted, but I think we're at the end of uh, your presentations. Um, I don't think I'm gonna get to take another round from the members. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank Let you. me take this opportunity to thank you both of you for coming today to present and to uh, answer to any questions and uh, concerns raised by the honorable members at this portfolio committee meeting. We are about to go to the next uh, presenters. You are allowed to uh, maybe give the last few concluding remarks before we move on. Um, I would like to make a, one last concluding remark. I just would like to highlight because um, what I um, what I have um, picked up the general sense from the questions that were asked um, in respect of the CGE's position um, as it pertains to the bill and the submissions we've made. Um, we do, the CGE supports the bill, but the most important thing and the reason why we made the submission is that there are obviously gaps that we've identified, whether we've identified all the gaps according to the portfolio or not, there have been gaps that are identified. And these are gaps that are incredibly important um, in respect of how well this um, piece of legislation, once it comes into effect, will um, work and how it will benefit a community, us as a community as a whole. Um, as um, I remember, there was a question that you particularly asked, Chair, about um, why the why the reliance on Section 16 and Chapter 9 would be like why we overlook that. And I want to emphasize that we would like to solve the problems before they arise. And it would be unfair to, uh, especially for LGBTIQA plus community that they automatically have to rely on a complaint system. So ideally we would, if I understood correctly, ideally we would like that um, the, the legislation be as clear as possible, be inclusive as possible um, to alleviate any, um, let's say, exclusion from enjoying benefits um, of the system. And I, I hope that it was clear in, the, in our submission that we are in favor of the bill because it is a really incredible and important bill. However, we need to try and um, plug holes and make the piece of legislation as clear as possible from the outset so that um, down the line, we are not running to courts to interpret 
certain sections because we've all interpret them differently as communities, as boards, as members of the public in terms of civil society. And I think that's what we were trying to um, convey, that it would be a really good bill and it would work really well and serve the community if we address the holes in the beginning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Honorable members, we are moving on to our last presenters for the day. We are about to receive a presentation from Solidarity. They're being led by Dr. Connie Mulder. I had noticed that he is on the platform. I'm going to give him an opportunity to introduce his team. And you are welcome, uh, Solidarity, to do your presentation immediately after the introductions. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. Uh, good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, just one clarification, it's it's not Dr. Connie Muller. I've not yet been awarded a doctorate. So uh, unfortunately, although I, I take the compliment, I cannot uh, take the title. Uh, my team that's here today is uh, Mornay Malan is logged in. Uh, he'll help with any additional questions. And um, Anton van Abel, who's our legal head, might join later. Um, from Solidarity's point of view, um, uh, that's, that's who's here today. And we're going to Present. Um, can I just, just Chairperson, can I start with the presentation? We're going to have a PowerPoint up on screen, so I don't think you'll be seeing me for the vast majority of the time. All right. Uh, good afternoon, honourable members. Um, Finally, uh, we're in front of the NHA Portfolio Committee. It's been a long time. This bill has been uh, it's submitted in 2019, and we're now in 2022, and we're still talking about it now. Solidarity really uh, took serious notice of this, this bill, and we did some extensive research uh, to, to see what, what is this bill going to entail and, uh, entail and how we can facilitate this. Now, from our opinion, uh, the bill is, is, quite frankly, it's unaffordable, firstly, uh, which should render all other com uh, communications and discussions about it uh, academic, is we, we cannot afford as a country what is proposed in this bill. But secondly, not only is it unaffordable, it is unnecessary. Um, and uh, lastly, it is, it is completely unworkable. Now, these uh, findings we base on uh, several experts who we contacted, as well as research we did under our own members who work in healthcare sector. Uh, we contacted Prof. Yanni Rousseau and Mike Holland. Prof. Yanni is at Pitts. He's a, a well-known economist to facilitate a costing of the NHI bill and to tell us what, what would the short funding shortfall be. The reason this was necessary is because no, no costing had been undertaken. So when we go through Prof. Yanni's uh, report, which, he, uh, which is an extensive report, it's in our written submission as well, there are several key points that he makes. Now, from, from our perspective, uh, this basically entails, as South Africa, as a country, uh, we're a middle-class family who's coming to sit down at our kitchen table. Uh, we've just spent 15% more than we earn. Our credit cards are maxed. And uh, we're now discussing whether we're going to buy a Boeing or an Airbus, because this is what uh, the extent of NHI finding, funding would be. Although we do need transport, um, this, is not, this is not the way to do it. And it, we're so far out from being able to afford this. Um, it's actually, it, it's, it's scary that we're still considering uh, this bill. In the white paper itself in 2017, uh, what we found is uh, 2010 prices, which have not been adjusted, and the full cost 
has not been added. What would NHI's full implementation actually cost for the simple reason we don't know what services will be implemented, which creates a scary slope where we can facilitate any services or, or, or none where we don't know what the actual cost will be. From Proviani's report, we uh, then facilitated the NHI cost estimates. We uh, transposed it with inflation and then worked out in 2026 uh, what would it possibly cost. And the shortfall funding, according to Proviani Rousseau, is uh, the cost is 256 billion and the shortfall funding would be almost 220 billion rand, which is just completely, completely out of reach. We, this was in 2019. Uh, this was with uh, conservative estimates of 2% economic growth and with our fiscal policy not worsening drastically, meaning that South Africans, South Africa's debt to GDP sort of stabilizes. It doesn't go uh, where we ended up. In 2022, we've now been hit by the COVID pandemic. This has had devastating consequences for our economy. We've been basically subject to, instead of a 6% budget deficit, which was already uh, unaffordable, to a 14% deficit. And we're touching uh, debt to GDP le levels of almost 90 to 100%, if you can believe uh, the Minister of Finance. Now, this means that our fiscal situation has deteriorated radically. So if this was unaffordable in 2019, it is completely unaffordable in 2022. The funding estimates differ. Treasury uh, stated in their midterm uh, budget speech in 2019 that um, it, it would take a, a watered-down version of the NHI, which would be 33 billion rand. Now, that was maybe achievable in 2019. There is no fiscal space left. As we can see, for the white paper to be successful, the white paper itself uh, works on a 3.5% growth uh, from, of GDP that needs to be established. Now, this means, uh, quite frankly, if the economy grows 3.5%, then government's revenue should also be able to grow at least 3.5%. South Africa has not managed this in more than a decade. We've, we've not had 3.5% growth. We, we haven't even touched 2% for the vast majority of the past decade. And due to COVID-19, we had a 7% contraction last year, and our recovery is not looking nearly as well. So we've actually, our economy is now back to almost 2013, 2014 levels. Um, that means uh, what we're planning with this bill is, is so out of the reach of South Africa as uh, fiscal position at the moment, there's just absolutely no way that we can afford this. And that is why we're starting with, it's, it's completely unaffordable. We cannot go through with what we're, we're, we've got at the moment. The, the funding would have to come from somewhere if we decide to continue. But unfortunately, there's no fiscal space left uh, on borrowing. Uh, we're already at almost 80% of GDP in at debt. This is the South African Reserve Bank's quarterly bulletin in March that showed our debt levels. Now, the OECD recommends for an emerging market like ourselves, we should be between 30 to 50%. So we're massively uh, over-indebted already. This we can see with debt service costs being one of the items that constantly uh, increase in our budget. So we cannot go borrow the money to implement the NHI, which leaves only one option if we decide to continue with this completely unaffordable bill, and that is we need to tax citizens more. We need to lift our taxation. Now, this could take several forms. For those recommendations are either an income tax surcharge of 20% to fund the shortfall, a VAT increase of from 15 to 20%, so a 5% VAT increase, a payroll tax of 5.5%, or increasing corporate tax, um, or a combination of all of these. Now, all of these have massive implications. As you can see, South Africa is already, for an upper middle income country, as the OECD defines us, or one of the most heavily taxed countries. We're taxed like a first world country, um, but we do not have the economy of uh, those countries, which means the tax burden in South Africa is significant. 
The tax base is uh, very small, unfortunately, and there is not a lot of room. All indication, indications are that we've already reached the latter curve. And this we can see with tax buoyancy. And if reports uh, are, are correct, we've seen a massive decrease in taxpayers and in tax uh, from, from this year onward, which means our option for funding this with higher taxation is not looking at all uh, possible. These are massive amounts of tax that would have to be levied. So we uh, calculated for our members if you use the 5.5% payroll tax, which is uh, the preferred option, a payroll tax to some extent, to fund the funding shortfall, um, this would be the average taxation with the NHI uh, for our members uh, between these income brackets. The income brackets are allocated to match uh, the uh, SARS's uh, tax brackets. So if you're earning between 7,276 Rand and 18,017 Rand per month, um, if we use a 5.5% payroll surcharge tax to fund the NHI, your tax would increase by 105%. If you're between 18,000 to 28,000, that would be 37.7%. And it, as you can see, it increases significantly as you continue with um, ultimately, even at the top bracket, if you're earning more than 138,000 rand a month, you would see a tax increase of about 14.6% to be able to fund uh, the Mr. NHI. Mr. Quickly interject. Can you put your slides actually projected uh, onto the screen and not on the side there? If you click on your slides. Um, yes. All right. Let me let me just go back. Uh, all right. Let me stop the share. Is it not showing for everyone? Well, you still had it uh, not enhanced on the side. Um, all right. Sorry. Share. Uh, now better or not? No, it's not. If you go to your left, which slide number are you on now? I am on slide six. There we go. All right. Is it? Can I just do it like that? If I if I do presenting, you can it's do that, um, or you can use your up and down uh, or your down uh, arrows to move the slide. All right. Uh, no problem, Chairperson. As this this is better uh, with visibility. Much better. Thank you. All right. Um, this is, uh, okay, so we're, we're back to, uh, these are our calculations based on uh, the vast majority of our members, uh, like 75% earn between 7,200 and um, 30,900, 38,900. So our members would see a significant, significant tax increase uh, just to be able to afford um, the NHI, if at all possible. From our perspective, this is, this is not something that South Africa can afford. We're considering, uh, literally, we're, we're, we don't have money for food and we're trying to buy an aircraft. The second part um, of not only is it unwork, un, un, unaffordable, but um, it's completely unnecessary. Uh, the, the findings that the NHI or the, the proposals are not ne the ones necessary to actually facilitate um, the change that we necessary. Now, now, we need to understand solidarity is not of the position that healthcare is at a good place at the moment. South Africa's healthcare is in dire need of reform. We cannot have, keep the status quo. Um, but we don't think the NHI is the way to reform this. Uh, this would be equivalent to having a leak in your roof in the kitchen, and then uh, your, your answer is to bulldoze the whole house and rather build a mansion. So if we go back to our metaphor, uh, we're a middle-class family, uh, low upper middle class, according to the OECD, and we're spending 15% more than we earn every month. And we've got a car that we need, but this car has several, several problems. Now, the logical thing would be to rather fix the car and this is what Prof. Alex van den Yeffer, who we commissioned for a report in 2019 to specifically focus on the, on the NHI bill, came to. His findings were, were quite thorough. The report is attached in our written uh, submission as well. 
Um, and it says, number one, the NHIS is not thought through. There are so many more ramifications that would happen if you completely dismantle private healthcare, especially on the funding side. Extensive mention is made of the fact that we are going for um, a pooling and purchasing split when there's not a lot of evidence that shows that purchasing is the problem at the moment in healthcare. It's much rather governance that we've, we've got a problem with. And that's why it says every single rational or every single policy proposal that has been, been proposed as fixing a problem uh, does not come with evidence. It doesn't come with feasibility studies. It doesn't come with concrete uh, reports that show this is what we need to do to fix public health care. From our perspective, that means that this is not a rational policy. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to, in short, uh, solve a problem, uh, NHI is a solution looking for a problem. And the problems that we have in healthcare, which we do, can be fixed uh, much easier than completely changing the whole healthcare sector, completely changing the way healthcare is done. Not the fact that almost no feasibility studies were done on such an extensive policy uh, is, is very worrying. And then uh, this does pose a significant risk to the existing medical structure. Um, what, what we're talking about is if the bill goes through that private uh, medical schemes and private insurance would basically be relegated to only uh, um, products that the fund does not explicitly offer. This would be a dismantling of the private medical scheme um, situation at the moment without showing that there would be significant benefit to uh, the members on those private medical schemes. But even to the bigger public, the idea that suddenly uh, the whole public would have access to private health and that everything would become uh, South Africa's private health is just not something that, that we can see. We would like that. We would obviously like public health care to be better, but we do not see this happening with, um, with the NHR. The last thing is then that it, it just misdiagnoses the problems in public healthcare at the moment. There are several problems, but uh, purchasing is not necessarily one of them. And going for the complete reversal uh, with uh, a uh, pooling and purchase, uh, a provider purchase split as necessary at, as NHI su suggests is not going to fix the governance problems. In fact, it might increase it. And this is the last last uh, uh, recommendation or finding of Prof. Alex van der Neufer from from Witz. He says. There are much easier and much more viable reforms, as illustrated, that should be followed. And we, we concur, there are a lot of things that we can do before we get to a situation where we decide we need to scrap the whole system almost and start over. The first thing that uh, in Table 10, it's page 75 of our uh, written submission of Prof. van der Jeffer's report, he goes through the problems specified in the NHI bill and then how the, uh, in the white papers and the NHI bill, and how the actual NHI bill addresses these problems. And as you can see, uh, for the two-tier system, it, it just does not address the pooling maybe, but it doesn't address the rest. There's no evidence provided that this would um, increase the quality of care, that it would increase the, uh, decrease the quality, quadruple burden of disease, social determinants of health. Um, it cannot find that it would, uh, maybe private health sector costs would come down, but there's nothing that shows that the main things uh, that we've identified, that he's identified as problems with the public health sector, with the health sector in South Africa, that these would be addressed by the NHI bill, which shows a misdiagnosis of the actual problems. And there are, uh, and then taking such extreme steps is, is extremely worrying if we're not talking about what we should actually be doing. The, the irony of universal health coverage, which is um, what, what the NHI bill is purported to be, is that the International Labor Office uh, did a gap analysis on South Africa and basically come to the, came to the conclusion, we've already got universal health coverage to a large extent. When we're talking about uh, the gaps that exist in legal health coverage, South Africa has shown to not have a gap there. In financial deficit, uh, most of the population, although all of the population does have access uh, to free medical care, 
according to a means test if necessary at some point. Um, so there are what they what exactly the NHI is trying to address here is not quite sure. Um, what this looks like is we've got a system that can work, but there are serious issues in the system, and we should much rather be addressing those issues than uh, than specifically focusing on revamping the whole system or completely trying to rework something that can work if we just fix governance a bit. And this is where Profonda Yefa extensively st um, stands still and says the main problem in South African hospitals, uh, quite frankly, in public hospitals, is we've got a governance failure um, that 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 gets back to extreme problems with service delivery. And um, he, he explicitly says political appointees have caused massive issues. And then having a fund that states that we will now have all healthcare uh, done by political appointees, well, not done, but the purchasing and political appointees would be a part of the funds set up. Um, this is something that, that worries us immensely. Um, if, you, if you look at just the Auditor General's finding on health departments, the fact that only the Western Cape managed uh, in the 2018 report an 82% clean audit in the healthcare with Gauteng's second at 52%, a distant second. And then after that is Mpumalanga at 24% clean audits and, and no one else really got above that. So we're looking at 5% and 8% clean audits. This is, this is, there's a lot that can be fixed before we try to scrap the system and start, and start over. And we should rather be focusing on those reforms that have been recommended by, um, by several, by the NHI Commission in 2005, by the Taylor Committee, by the NDA, uh, the National Department of Health's consultation document, by the ministerial task team in 2005 and by the most recent health marketing inquiry of the competition commission in 2019 which diagnosed the problems in healthcare which there are but came to the conclusion that uh, not only you should not go to a single payer scheme or a monopoly purchaser but you should have more schemes and allow risk adjustment to enable and then maybe move eventually to get universal health coverage to mandatory uh, participation in a scheme but not have only one scheme and to ensure that we can get health coverage done whilst still competing efficiently None of these came to the conclusion that we need a single purchaser, a monopoly purchaser, or that it would drive prices down. Um, in fact, it came to the conclusion there are several issues, and many of them, most of them are governance related. The last, uh, last objection we have to this bill is uh, we don't think it's, it's workable. It is completely unworkable. Um, this would be our middle class family now deciding that we're going to fix the car, but we are, uh, we're, we're finding out after we fixed our car, or well, after we've bought our Boeing, um, which is what we, we're proposing, uh, there are no pilots left. And now we, we're also stranded, we cannot go anywhere. Solidarity did three different surveys amongst healthcare professionals who are members of us. Um, 1,410 1, answered, just asking, what is your general opinion of the NHI? And overwhelmingly, this opinion is negative. It's almost four out of five that have a negative opinion uh, other answers would be, we're not sure what's going to change, but the most significant one um, is, uh, quite frankly, 85% of healthcare professionals agree that the implementation of the NHI will lead to a private healthcare professionals leaving the country. Um, so that means they're completely convinced their colleagues will leave the healthcare sector, either the sector or the country, if this were to be implemented. Now, this this smacks of uh, not having consulted with the people who need to drive uh, this, this system and them being extremely unsure. And, uh, and finally, then, then deciding I'm going to do something else. The certificate of need that recently came up uh, has been the start of, we did some research on our members regarding that as well. And uh, it's, it's overwhelmingly negative with several expressing that I will, I will personally leave. And this is the next, <laughs> next one that says, because of the proposed NHI, I have already taken steps to emigrate. It's 13.7%. But then when you say um, when it gets implemented, almost 36% of respondents say, 
uh, yes, I'm going to emigrate then. I'm going to leave the country. Now, this is leaving the country. That's extreme. Leaving the profession, um, let's say people talk a lot, but uh, leaving the profession should be somewhere along those lines, which should be extremely worrying. If we're talking about providing better healthcare and better access, then we need healthcare workers who actually are able to work in the system. And at the moment, the sentiment amongst healthcare workers is of such a, to such an extent, they're just going to not do it. So it's all of this uncertainty that we've uh, captured, captured in this bill, uh, but we haven't communicated with the people on the ground who are going to have to, to implement it. And they're extremely negative about the system. And quite frankly, they're, they're, they're going to leave uh, when it happens. This is, yeah, um, that's the, just the audit funding. So from our perspective, um, we're not of the opinion that healthcare in South Africa is at a good, a good space. We need, we need to reform healthcare in South Africa. Uh, the current uh, situation is not sustainable. However, we cannot uh, implement the system that would detract from what is currently available on offer, which means uh, we cannot have a system that dismantles private healthcare for a benefit that we cannot see uh, proven in any evidence or uh, any studies, any feasibility studies on the public sector. Um, we think the public sector needs to be fixed, uh, most definitely. We think there are several things that can be done, and we think we need to start with uh, cleaning up governance in the public sector. And this we can see through the simple fact that in the Western Cape, for some reason, public health seems to still be working, but in a, a socially sort of identical province like Gauteng, you've got significant challenges with uh, public health. And this implies that it's a governance and a management problem, much rather than anything else. The NHI misdiagnoses this. It is completely unaffordable, which actually makes most of the discussion academic. South Africa just simply cannot afford what we're proposing here, um, where we, we want to honestly buy an, air, buy an Airbus when we, we cannot even afford a car. It's completely, um, un, well, it's, it's unnecessary. At the moment, we've, we've got a health sector that does a large, to a large extent, can do what we need for universal health coverage. We just need to fix the obvious leaks in the roof, and then it's unworkable. Uh, we've not consulted with healthcare workers, and we haven't considered the impact that this system would have on healthcare workers who will inevitably. Uh, leave the country. So from our perspective, we cannot support this bill. We're not going to, in fact, we feel so strongly that if this bill were to continue, um, we are most definitely looking at uh, instigating litigation against it to get a more rational approach to healthcare reform. Thank you, Mr. Mulder. So on that note, we now know what we are looking forward to with regards to the uh, actions from your side. We have a number of members who do want to raise some questions from you. Honorable Van Staden, Sukacha, Yela, Clark, and uh, any other members? Let me just... Suela. On our chat group here, Suela. The rest of you may shout your names or if I can get to this. Munyai, Siwela, Munyai, Harvard, Wilson, and thank you very much. And then Honorable Flangwa uh, says she's still not feeling too well, so she will not raise questions now. We wish you a quick recovery from the flu, Flangwa. Uh, we will, I will repeat then as Van Staden, Sukacha, Gela, Clark, Siwela, Bunyai, Harvard, and Wilson. In that order, thank you, members.
Thank you, Chairperson. Good afternoon, Mr. Mulder. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. I think you have provided us today with information that we have, as a committee, needed to know in order for us to go forward. So thank you for that. I just have um, one or two questions for you. My question is, is very straightforward and simple. Well, uh, are you able to provide this committee and Parliament with an alternative model that is, that is and that will be better than the national health insurance to, in order to provide extremely good health care to all South Africans and that is affordable for our South African economy. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. That is all from my side. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Mulder. Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. Um, just uh, two questions from my side. The first one, uh, the presenter uh, is dismissing the evidence on the, <clears throat> sorry, on the quadruple burden of disease and social determinants cited in the NHI document uh, bill. Now, <clears throat> My question is, are you saying um, you do not agree with the MRC, the NICD, the HSRC, and the WHO survey on the burden of disease and its uh, impact on health systems? Then, uh, Honorable Chairperson, my second question um, is uh, the evidence relied on in the solidarity slides seems to be purposefully uh, uh, selected to present a negative argument towards the NHI with no specific reference to elements in the bill. Are there any specific consideration or comments on the NHI bill, or is the position that solidarity doesn't support the universal health coverage, so there's no need for the bill? Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Chair for the opportunity. I've got two questions to ask to the presenter. Uh, my first question, Chairperson, uh, the goal of NHI is to ex uh, extend population uh, coverage, improve the quality and quantity of service uh, available for the population whilst deepening a financial risk a protection for all, not just a consumers of private health care. Have you read section two of the bill, which states the purpose of the NHI fund? Uh, my second question, uh, Chairperson, uh, did Solidarity submit comments on the green and white papers on NHI when the 
NDOH had uh, published them for comments and input from the stakeholders. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Honorable Chair, thank you very much for this opportunity. I want to ask solidarity. Uh, for instance, they pointed out the NHI has been not thought through. Uh, are, they re, are they disagreeing with all technical analysis outlined in all policy documents, including the bill? You have also argued that there's no evidence on the public purpose of the NHI. NHI. My understanding of the public purpose is the, that it means all purpose is benefiting everyone, not just private individuals. Uh, have we noted from the technical analysis presented to us by a different stakeholder how inequitable, inefficient, and discriminatory the current system is? Are you saying that this does not de uh, demonstrate the evidence of the public papers? Should we allow the current status quo to continue with with the two-tier system, two-tier system of which the private medical aid or private sector receive 8% to the GDP, accounting to over 400 billion rent? Do you want that to persist? What about right to healthcare? What about right to equitable for everyone to have access to services. I continue to say, for instance, uh, I was involved in car accident with my brother. Now, please, Chairperson, can you protect me from this disrupt, perpetual disruption by honorable member who doesn't follow the rules? You are protected, honorable Munyai. Honorable Chair, I my repeat. apologies, Chair. I did not realize I was unmuted. Okay. Honorable Chair, I was involved in the car accident with my brother. I have medical aid from Parliament. He didn't have medical aid. He was not picked up. And he was terribly injured. He was not picked up on the basis that of his socioeconomic status. He didn't have the money to pay. I have medical aid. They wanted to pick me up. I said no to hell. I can't leave my brothers in a, in a very injured status like this. But the ambulance left him. The ambulance discriminated him by leaving him there under a very dire situation. Is that what you want to see perpetual? Uh, Connie Mulder from the Solidarity, as I believe, if I can be answered. Um, um, Chair, um, thank you. Can I go ahead? Because I was supposed to go forth, but it doesn't matter. It's not a problem. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chair. Um, just, I would just like to ask the following questions, please. Um, how would you say we will be able to provide um, universal health care in this country 
considering the feasibility of the state and to incorporate the private healthcare system as key role players. It's critical that we achieve such to provide quality healthcare to all South Africans in this country. Um, you talk about most South Africans having access, but we all know that that the, the that the current system has really failed um healthcare in this country, you know, and 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 that um we we are not in a situation where we provide quality health care. And that is something that we really need to look um in turning around. And um as my um previous colleague uh, member von Staden had said, it would be very interesting to see an alternative model in order to achieve this from yourselves. I also would like to ask you, in terms of the healthcare profession, what would you say government should do to ensure healthcare workers are brought into the fold and that they have the opportunity to participate in terms of the proposed bill and that their inputs are taken into account? Because I think that's a very, very um, important aspect because they will be playing an absolute key role in terms of um providing services. And I mean, if this has been missing uh, in terms of the public participation, then certainly um, that, that's an aspect that really needs to be looked at. Thank you. Chairperson, is it my turn? It is your turn, Honorable Sibela. Thank you, Chair. Um, I would like to ask the following question to the presenter. The presenter indicates that NHI is unaffordable and hence any further discussion is academic. And this is based on selectively chosen analysis to suit this position. Is solidarity aware that NHI funding is not based on introducing new taxes but more about the restructuring current allocations into the health sector. Secondly, solidarity also indicates that NHI is unworkable because of the findings from their study with 1,410 respondents who are mainly or primarily members of solidarity. Is the expectation that a policy that gives benefits to a population of 50 million plus lives must be accepted or rejected based on the opinions of 1,410 individuals. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chairperson. And I hope that I am next because I kind of lost count along the way. Um, Chair, from, uh, uh, thank you very much to Solidarity for your presentation. I have a couple of questions. Um, the first is that what is universal health coverage? Well, universal health coverage just uh, allows for any person, any citizen of South Africa and foreign nationals, according to the WHO, to access health facilities um, to get medical care when required. Now, principally, my argument in, in this case is that in actual fact, we do have universal health coverage. There is nothing in this country whatsoever stopping any person going to any clinic or even hospital to access uh, medical care. They've never been stopped. They're not being turned away um, and they are being dealt with, although under very, very difficult conditions. 
We had a, a comment by earlier presenters this week that the the three most entire health system must be based on three pillars. Um, one is the affordability and sustainability of the health sector. The second is accessibility to health. And the third, of course, is quality. Now, in principle, if you have a look at the current health system, none of those pillars are really in place. Um, therefore, we have started already on a very rocky foundation. But it does not mean that South Africans or those other people in the country requiring health care cannot go to a facility and cannot are, are turned away at any facility. So in, in principle, we basically have a, a universal health system. Um, I'm not sure if you would agree with me. And therefore, should the priority not be to upgrading those systems, putting in a solid foundation, and then starting with a slow implementation? Um, and I, for me, and I'm not sure if you will agree, that should be our priority. Um, you did mention the um, report by Professor um, Alex van der Heerfer. I'm not sure if I have got that report. I've struggled with my system. I just ask our secretary while she's on the, the, the platform to please ensure that we get that because I think it's a very extensive report. In terms of the first Zondo Commission report, and I'm going to link this to the current SIU report on um, the horrific corruption and collusion we have seen with regards to PPE um, and the, the, the corruption and theft that took place in this country as a result of that. It takes me to um, our single purchaser system. Um, and particularly with one person being accountable and that being the minister, i.e. the minister has got the sole responsibility of appointing boards, of appointing um, officials, um, and, and, you know, we have, well, I have an issue with that. Could you expand on your concerns about the minister having the sole right to manage all of these things? And will it not lead to collusion um, and corruption in the long run? It must certainly affect pricing. And a big concern is, and, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree with me, that that system is going to stop innovation and development in the health sector, because why should one do that if they're never going to be considered or their innovations um, and developments are not going to be considered, considered um, because of the single purchasing model? And lastly, um, if you can tell me that, in your opinion, will this bill, if taken to the Constitutional Court, with all its, its problems, and we have heard dozens, many repeated um, in the presentations over the uh, last few months, if you believe that this um, bill will meet constitutional muster? Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Also, thank you for the presentation. I just have two questions. First one, what about the Constitution? Does the solidarity reject the right of access to health care for all as provided for in Section 27? How does solidarity propose that we should fix the health system since you are not convinced that NHI is feasible? We have heard a lot of mention of various professors that says it is unaffordable. Second question, 
has solidarity any work of their own to come up with the views presented today? I thank you. Chair, may I go now? Yes, Honorable Ismail, I've uh, indicated to you that you can ask questions. Thank you. Thank you, Chair, and uh, thank you to Solidarity for your uh, presentation. Um, you know, it's good to know uh, and it's good to hear from all uh, entities and all stakeholders to be able to actually get a rounded view on this matter. So what I would like to highlight and ask again, although it has been asked, I think, before by my colleagues that have spoken previously, however, you know, however, I think it must be stressed, uh, I would like to really get your input on, you know, alternatives. And, uh, you know, while I agree that, you know, you may see or it may be understood that, you know, we already have a healthcare system in place. We also know that this healthcare system is not actually viable. It's not working in South Africa. Uh, we have public state, uh, you know, public hospitals, public clinics, we have uh, everything. However, to our detriment, we, we have so much corruption in the system for one. Secondly, we agree that, you know, we're not actually getting efficient healthcare services to our communities. Now, what do you think is an alternative to the NHI? Could be put in place considering the fact that you know we've got healthcare workers we've got uh healthcare workers that study overseas that are south africans but they are forced to go overseas to study simply because they're not getting the opportunity for studying in this country we have the, the the fact that you know we have community service doctors that are waiting to be placed although there are openings in our in our hospitals but due to lack of funding we have nurses that are crying to say that, you know, what, uh, their contracts have now been, you know, terminated after this COVID, uh, you know, pandemic, uh, or rather I should say the, the, if this, you know, it's coming to an endemic now. So the needs are much lower according to uh, reports that we've received. But we all know that nurses are crucial in all our facilities. Now, considering the fact that we've got healthcare workers, um, that are not being placed. We know that healthcare workers are looking at uh, going overseas because they just feel that, you know what, they're not getting value for money here for one. And two is that they're not getting opportunity, frankly. So what do you think? And uh, let me not even go much further on the infrastructure that we have uh, issues on. And we do know that, you know what, there is a lack of funding, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, what would you recommend as an alternative I mean, have you done a feasibility study as stated before by, I think, one or two of my colleagues to say, what can you actually recommend to be placed on the table so that the National Department of Health with Treasury can look at as an alternative, taking into consideration medical aids, taking into consideration the private sector, and where we can actually put things on the table that will make our healthcare system in our country work with the ultimate aim and the crucial aim, I should say, of providing universal quality health care to our people of South Africa. Now, you know, I, what I, why I'm highlighting this is because everything that you're seeing on your financial, you know, feasibility studies makes a lot of sense. And the fact that we've already got a healthcare system in this country, we don't want to, you know, reinvent the wheel. So I'm just suggesting that maybe you could write in, you know, submit your recommendations or inputs to say, you know what, where you have this on the bill, uh, substitute it with A, B, C, D, E, so that what we have can actually function. 
you know, uh, something of that sort so that we can actually progress instead of regress by going um, to reinvent the wheel and by, uh, you know, while you do with your inputs, we can actually look at all the other submissions to say, you know what, where are the shortfalls and let's make it work in this country where we have an efficient healthcare system. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, honorable members. I do not, I'm not going to allow another round from the members now. So I'm going to pose all the questions which I want to pose and I want to speak to a number of issues, Mr. Mulder, which you had raised on behalf of solidarity. The one is that you talk about uh, the fact that no research or technical analysis have been undertaken uh, to support um, the statement that the current two-tier system is inequitable. I find it very challenging um, that you would make such a statement since we are, are fully aware of the financing and benefit incidents analysis included in the white paper. Now, the conclusion with regards to this in that white paper is that the benefit incidence of health care in South Africa is very pro-rich, with the richest 20% of the population receiving 36% of total benefits, despite having a health need share of less than 10% while the poorest 20% receive only 12.5% of the benefits, despite having a health need share of more than 25%. Do you disagree with this analysis, therefore? And if you do, what is the basis of your disagreement? Have you done your own financing and benefit incident analysis? And if you have, you can please share that report with us and then on your uh, so your talks about the risk adjustment mechanisms are you proposing that the current dual healthcare system should be maintained with all its challenges the parliament should rather focus on equalizing the risk factors for the medical schemes population in isolation of the poor and strengthen cross-subsidization and social solidarity for the private sector. If that is so, what would then happen to the poor people? Would that not defeat the objectives of social solidarity, therefore? And then you also admit that your judgment of the system is based on your particular ideology. And your interpretation, or rather, I should ask you, do you admit? I can't say that you have admitted. But it's based on your particular ideology, and your interpretation is based on your own interests that are not necessarily the interests of the majority of the poor people of South Africa or the people of South Africa for that matter. If you could tell us about your views of the ethics of the bill. And then two more points I want to raise with you. One is regards to your comparison of the 33 billion rand and the 226 billion rand and calculated and your calculation of the NHI implementation shortfall and funding on the basis of these figures. Now, where, where is the data and what are your data sources that you used uh, to arrive at the 226 billion rand uh, and exactly what is covered in this figure? 
And then finally, in your closing comment from, uh, you, you mentioned that solidarity seems to be a threatening legal challenge. And you would remember that I actually uh, mentioned this once you had made that statement. So the question would be, should we as parliament therefore uh, continue the processing of reviewing the NHI bill? And am I making a correct conclusion? Thank you very much. Those are all the questions from the honorable members, and you are very welcome to respond to those questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chair. There are a lot of questions, so bear with me. I've got several papers here written. I think um, uh, we can start with uh, Honorable Sokucha, who says that we're just uh, plain dismissing evidence, and uh, do we not agree? that the burden of disease is a problem uh, with uh, several other institutions. Um, now, we, I don't think, I think we explicitly stated, and it's, it's uh, actually quite worrying that members still uh, did, not, did not get that. We explicitly stated that we are not happy with the status quo. We, we think healthcare needs reform. We don't think the system as it is, is one that is sustainable on the long term. We, however, vehemently disagree with the NHI as the solution to this problem. We think, quite frankly, that uh, this bill is solving a lot of problems, but those are not the problems that we have. Um, so obviously the burden of disease is a problem that, that healthcare experiences. This would be folly to say that when people get more sick, healthcare is not more uh, taxed. However, uh, st stating that the answer to this is a single fund with a monopoly purchaser that destroys private healthcare whilst having negligible, from what we can tell, benefit for the public healthcare sector, uh, we don't agree with that part, uh, of course not. And we don't think that's going to work. And we think, quite frankly, it's going to have the opposite effect. We're going to have negative health benefits in South Africa, and we're going to reduce the, the health benefits that we've already had. Um, then, Honorable Silizi, uh, I'm, firstly, I'm, I'm truly sorry for your uh, motor vehicle accident. It's, it's never fun to be in a motor vehicle accident, and I hope that you, you recovered and that your brother is also, is also quite fine. Um, however, uh, we... we <laughs> We obviously do not want a situation where ambulances drive away from someone because of their socioeconomic status. The, the fact of the matter is that there was an ambulance there and that we, that ambulance should have picked up your brother, but that's not, um, once again, the question is, would NHI be the correct way or should we rather look at reforming our current health sector or at least uh, changing the way the public health sector works at, uh, at the moment? Um, uh, for, the, for the simple reason, we've got massive issues in public health care. There we, we agree with you 100%. Uh, we don't want that to persist. We think we can fix that. We've got primarily governance issues and um, as Honorable Wilson stated, extensive, extensive corruption issues. Now this should not be something that should be difficult to fix. It's, it's simple. Get rid of the people who steal and then once we do, we've done that, then we can see uh, what, what does the sector look like when it's actually functioning. We've got an example of this in the Western Cape where the outcomes are much, much better um, uh, as Prof. Andrei Efre states in his report, Gauteng, uh, with a very similar socio, uh, socio, social makeup of the Western Cape, has significantly worse outcomes. So it's not funding, it's not um, purchasing, it's a governance and a management problem that we've, that we've explicitly seen. Um, uh, does do we think uh, the current health system is discriminatory? Do we want uh, the whole 8% of GDP is being spent on, uh, on uh, the private sector? Um, the, the catch there is it's 8% it's of GDP, but um, it's, that this is private money. So that the question would be, why do people need this amount of, of private money? 
this is not tax money. This is something that people spend on top of tax money. There's a tax credit that gets specifically regarding healthcare. But um, from our perspective, we would like public healthcare to be better. We would obviously like public healthcare to be better. We think the way to do it is to first reform the system that we currently have. This is a much cheaper alternative and it's much more viable than proposing a bill that would uh, invalidate private healthcare to a large degree and then um, have no, from what we can tell, negligible benefit for the public health sector, just reducing the current offering rather than adding to the current offering. And our perspective is we need to add to the current offering. We can do that. It's much more viable than changing everything. As we've stated, just because your roof is leaking does not mean you should bulldoze your whole house. You should fix the leaky roof. And that is where we should start. The, this current bill envisages a complete rehaul of a system that is not necessary. Um, then let's go. Honorable Van Staden asked for an alternative model. Um, Prof. Van Nieuwer extensively deals with this uh, in his report, in which he states, um, well, firstly, the health market inquiry of the Competition Commission in 2019 also did an extensive diagnostic on the health sector, uh, identified a lot of the same problems that the NHI bill identifies, but comes to radically different conclusions. Um, ultimately, uh, they, they state that uh, they would propose that we get more medical schemes, we get more purchases to drive efficiency and costs down. And then they're looking at, in the longer term, having a mandatory medical aid membership and forcing medical aids to then have a very low base entry level. Entry level. So then you would have competition amongst purchases as well. Um, you would have uh, competition that automatically drives prices down and you would have the market working to get that going whilst then enabling universal medical aid membership. This would sidestep the massive problems that we've seen with central funds, with central uh, uh, funds that is available for plunder. Unfortunately, in South Africa, this is a reality that we need to face is when there's a central fund, a certain portion of that will most likely be lost to corruption. We've seen this time and again. We can sidestep that if we follow the health market inquiries attempts or, or models that they've uh, implemented, that they've stated. So that would be one of the findings that we think we should be addressing. There are several more uh, that they've done. Prof. Nerefer has done extensive work um, on what could be more viable alternatives. This is in our written, uh, in our written uh, submission that we uh, submitted in 2019. Um, I can read from it, but I don't think we have enough time to read uh, extensively from it. But the findings are, in short, uh, that corruption is a massive problem and we are, we'll, we'll be in trouble there. Um, then let's uh, go to Honorable Gela. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, which states, uh, do we not want to extend coverage of healthcare to the broader population? Once again, we've stated our position extensively. Um, yes, of course, we want uh, healthcare. We want people to have access to healthcare. Uh, as Honorable Wilson mentioned, at the moment, we have that in South Africa. It's just poor quality healthcare. Um, we think we should much rather be addressing the poor quality of the healthcare in the public sector than trying to uh, change the, the private sector. So from our perspective, um, yes, of course, we need to ensure that the quality in the public sector gets better. We think there are a lot of different ways of doing this. We don't think this bill that completely changes the whole legislative framework is the way to do it. We don't think a single monopoly purchaser will achieve this goal of incre increasing um, healthcare. The constitution guarantees access to healthcare, and arguably uh, South Africa already has that. For, from our perspective, having access to poor quality healthcare is, is not uh, a realization of, of that right necessarily, which means you need access to good quality healthcare, but that can be achieved by reforming the public sector by first getting to a point 
where our health departments and hospitals get clean audits. It's, it's literally as simple as that. The moment we get to a point where our hospitals have clean audits, where we've got uh, good governance in every single public hospital, if we're at that point and we decide we're still not, uh, not satisfied with the health coverage we have, then we can start having this debate about reforming the system. But just because the system doesn't work at the moment doesn't, doesn't mean we need to change the whole system. It's much easier and much cheaper to just get rid of the crooks. It, it is literally as, as simple as that. Um, did we read section two of the bill? Yes, we read these bills extensively. We read all the white papers. We commented on the 2017 white paper. On the 2011 green paper, um, I would not be able to say. I'm of the opinion that we would have, um, but I was not employed with Solidarity at that point. Uh, this is, do take it into account, this is 11 years ago. On the 2017 uh, white paper, we most definitely commented, and the 2019 bill, we most definitely gave a written submission. In fact, we had to go to court to be able to give an oral submission to this committee. So we've been in part of this process extensively from the start, and uh, we're participating in the legislative process, uh, and we're, we're, we're thankful for the opportunity to then present our findings. Um, for uh, Honorable Siwela said that we've uh, selectively chosen our data um, and uh, to show that it's unaffordable. Uh, this data, that the data that we chose is from National Treasury's budget, so um, we selectively chose the ones that are, uh, are, are relevant to funding something, the debt to GDP ratios, but this is public knowledge that South Africa is not in a good space, fiscally or economically. Um, and just stating that does not imply that, uh, that this would be, uh, that we've now cherry-picked the economic data specifically. Um, restructuring that, that the bill itself states explicitly that they would be funding it through taxation. Uh, we've just simply... Uh, contracted Prof. Rousseau in to tell us what would be the impact of this taxation. And he then uh, used the 2017 white paper with the proposals that they proposed, used their values, adjusted them from 2010, which was not done. This is something that needs to be stated. It wasn't inflation adjusted the values in the 2017 white paper, it was 2010 values. He adjusted it for inflation. He adjusted it for inflation further to two, uh, 2026, then worked out what percentage of our GDP we would like to spend on healthcare, and then worked out the funding shortfall. So this is not uh, something that we've tried with black magic or something along those lines to get. Uh, this is public knowledge. It's the Treasury. It's public knowledge of South Africa's finances. So South Africa is in a very, very dire situation financially. This should not be a controversial opinion. The fact that we do not have money to afford this is not something that we're making up. This is a simple fact. And this means, from our perspective, Professor just did a, a simple, how would we be able to fund this? Uh, the one uh, is a 5.5% surcharge on payroll taxes, which has been stated as the preferred benefit option. And we then took that number that is in the 2017 paper and in the 2019 NHI, in Prof. Rousseau's statement, but according to the 2019 NHI bills, values in the 2017 white papers bill, and worked out what would be the impact on our members if you have a 5.5% surcharge. Then regarding, uh, from for Honorable Ziwelo said, uh, it's unworkable because we had 1,410 healthcare workers, which we surveyed. Um, that this would not be for 50 million people. The harsh reality of surveys is you cannot survey 50 million people um, every time. And we've, uh, it's not, not, not like 20, 20 or people, 1,410 is an, a very good uh, sample. Uh, this is also not the general population. These are healthcare workers that work for, that are members of Solidarity. So we explicitly targeted the ones who were going, who should be implementing the health reforms, who would be working in the system and having a survey of 1,400 it's not absolute, obviously, uh, but the margin of error would be actually quite small, and um, it's an indication for how healthcare workers in general 
would feel, especially about it's an indication for how healthcare workers who are a member of solidarity feel regarding the system. And from our perspective, it's a it's a valid um, a valid survey. Uh, Honourable Wilson stated uh, that universal healthcare coverage al already exists. Uh, we we concur. Is if you look at access to healthcare, South Africa does have access to healthcare. It's not access to good quality healthcare, but that does not mean that we, we're, we're failing in universal healthcare coverage. And this is corroborated in Prof. Nierfus report through the International Labor Office, which states that there are very small gaps, if any, in our universal healthcare coverage. The quality of that healthcare, there we can have an argument on. Uh, we're of the opinion it's poor quality healthcare and we need to fix the quality. But how you do that is not this bill. We don't think this bill is going to address uh, the quality necessarily. We don't even think that it's focusing on the right end. We think, and we've explicitly stated this, and we agree with Prof. Nierfer's findings in his report, we've got governance and management issues in the current healthcare sector. We can follow the Competition Commission's health market inquiries uh, recommendations to significantly improve the quality of healthcare, which would facilitate um, eventually, if we want to get to a point where everyone will be able uh, to get mandatory medical aid membership, but get more competitors in, because that actually drives price down. We have not seen in South Africa that a monopoly purchaser leads to efficiency. We can think of ESCOM specifically. It leads. It does not necessarily lead to efficiency, and we're very scared to go down this route with something as critical as healthcare. Um, do we think uh, that uh, the minister having sole in, uh, oversight or the sole right to compete, to appoint people for a fund of this magnitude is a massive worry? Given South Africa's history of corruption, given the fact that we've now had an SOE report that shows in the middle of a pandemic, we had officials uh, plundering money meant for literally saving lives. Um, yes, we are extremely worried about the, uh, having a fund of this magnitude under political oversight. We think what we should do is follow the example of the rest of the world, which is whilst we can look at centralizing pooling, we should decentralize as much of medical healthcare planning as we can to reduce the risk of when uh, of, of losing uh, funds to corruption. And that is, that is uh, one of the findings that Prof. Nierfer also finds in his report and explicitly states we should decentralize as much as possible and follow the examples internationally where we get we make sure that the piggy bank is not that big um, uh, for the it's a it's a tragic state of affairs that we're here but the harsh reality is we need to face that whenever the fund like this is uh, it's a massive problem that we will most likely have corruption issues do we think this bill will pass constitutional muster um, no our submission explicitly states we, we don't think it will we don't think it will pass muster for rationality we don't think it will pass muster for feasibility and it, since a large part of the bill would be uh, depriving the rights uh, instead of just adding to rights, uh, we think it, it, it will not pass that. Um, I'm not a legal expert, so don't quote me on this. But uh, from our consultations with advocates, of which we've had many, uh, their opinion, they're of the opinion that this will not pass that muster and they will eventually get to that point. Um, Honorable, I think it's Havard. Um, I'm, I don't know if I'm correct. Uh, pronouncing it correctly, who asks, well, what about the constitution? Um, we also, uh, we explicitly, we're not dismissing section 27.2 of the constitution. Um, we're of the opinion that access to healthcare is something, it's not a right to healthcare, it's a right to access to healthcare, but we already have access to healthcare. We've got an extensive public healthcare sector that we spend billions of rands on every year so it's not that there's nothing there's no it, there is an extensive public healthcare sector that is already well funded from tax money um, we need to ensure to just fix that up uh, that means we don't need to rehaul the whole system 
We need to fix the system. We've got a system that is leaking, that is prone to corruption and mismanagement. And if we just fix that system, then we can give a realization to access to healthcare because realistically, you do have that. It's just access to poor quality healthcare. This can be fixed. It can be fixed quite easily if we just listen to the several reports that have been commissioned already and that have been stated. Yet we've chosen an alternative that is vastly unaffordable and that does not address the central problems that we've got. Um, Honorable Ishmael asked for alternatives. I think we've exhaustively stated uh, what our alternative is. I think you can go and have a closer look at the health market inquiry from the Competition Commission in 2019 um, that, that stated what they think uh, is necessary to address the problems. The issue is that this bill does not address those problems. So the reason we're not specific on, focusing on specific instances or sections of this bill is because we think the starting point, quite frankly, is wrong. Going to a single purchaser is not something that 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 can be that that should be done, and that's why we're against the bill in its entirety. And our, we're of the opinion the bill should be uh, retracted, redrafted into something that uh, much closer follows the the recommendations of the ministerial advisory, uh, advisory committee on health, NDOHs. Uh, this is from the early 2000s, as well as the most recent ones, the health marketing period of 2019, which have extensively done diagnostic uh, exercises. Um, just see who I'm missing here. Uh, then, um, Honourable Jacobs stated, uh, "Are we do we differ with the technical analysis on the the need the health need share? Um, if you're stating that the this it's it's basically along the lines of do we want the inequity in healthcare to continue? Um, I think opposition is clear that we don't think the status quo is sustainable. We don't think the NHI is the solution, however, and we don't think the NHI is going to lead to more equitable access to quality healthcare. It might be more equitable access, but it's not going to be quality healthcare. And even on the equitable side." Um, we're not convinced. Uh, although there is a problem in the distribution of uh, funds, this, uh, well, in, in, in delivery, it's not necessarily a problem in the distribution of funds. South Africa spends a lot, literally uh, billions up, uh, on healthcare for significantly worse health outcomes than comparable countries. This is uh, facilitated in Crawford and Efforts report as well, uh, where he looks specifically at maternal mortality rates. South Africa has maternal mortality rates almost three times that of countries with comparable health um, healthcare spend. Now, this would imply that the problem is not on the purchasing side. The problem is not on the financial side, which is what the NHI bill is uh, trying to suggest. It's much more on a governance and a management side and on the service delivery side. And this is what we should be addressing is why, when we spend so much money on healthcare, are we getting such dismal results? And this is uh, where we think the focus should be is let's look at the system we have and let's look at why it's not working um, rather than dreaming of a system that we think we might have one day and uh, what, which is unaffordable and which we can't actually implement, the much more viable alternative is to just fix the current system, get clean audits in our cell systems, get rid of the crooks. That would work. Um, our interpretation is based on ideology, uh, was stated by, by uh, uh, the Honorable Jacobs. Um, that that might be true. I would posit that the NHI bill is also based on the ideology of the, of the ruling party who, who implemented it. Um, from our perspective, what do we make of the majority of poor people? We obviously want everyone in South Africa to have access to quality healthcare. We think that's that's something that should happen. We don't think that bill, this bill will facilitate it. In fact, we think this bill will achieve the opposite. It will reduce the access that uh, people on private medical schemes have at the moment, whilst not necessarily enhancing the access of people who aren't on these medical schemes. And that means, from our perspective, uh, this bill is not going to achieve what it sets out to do. In fact, it's a very high-risk, complete reform of the system without doing proper risk analysis, without doing any of these things, it's it's almost reckless the way we've steamrolled ahead 
with a bill that has not been costed pro properly, um, that has done very little in the form of feasibility studies. And this, this you can read further. You can uh, contact Prof. Neyefer if you want. We'll provide contact details. We provided resumes of the experts that we used in our written submission as well. And his report should be available where he more extensively uh, deals with this. Um, the ethics of healthcare. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about the question as to do we not want people to have access to healthcare, which we unequivocally state, of course not. We want people to have access to healthcare. We've stated this repeatedly. We've stated this in our presentation. Uh, we're not of the opinion that uh, poor people should not have access to healthcare. We're not of the opinion that anyone should not have access to healthcare. Um, we're just of the opinion that this bill will not actually succeed in extending that coverage. It will not succeed in anything other than destroying uh, the private healthcare sector with negligible benefit otherwise, which means we're actually very concerned about access to healthcare for everyone. Um, we don't think this bill is going to achieve it. We've stated our alternatives repeatedly. And then regarding a legal challenge, um, at the moment, uh, we are still in consultation and we're part of legislative process. Um, we think and our findings and uh, our, our submission, uh, written submission that we submitted in 2019, explicitly states that we think this bill should be withdrawn. Uh, there should be a lot more work done on something that is as ex that, it, that is, uh, proposes such radical reforms as what this one does. We don't think it's going to pass constitutionality and we are ready to, uh, to have the constitutional court hear that challenge um, if necessary, we will take uh, the legal route as well. I think that is everyone. Uh, I thank you for your time, honorable members, um, and hopefully uh, we can get to a, a conclusion on this. Thank you very much, Mr. Mulder, and to your team for coming to present. We, honorable members, we have come to the conclusion of our meeting for today. Uh, Mr. Mulder, I will give you an opportunity um, oh, yes, I will come back to you, Honorable Van Staden. Mr. Mulder, if I will give an opportunity to give a closing remark, and then I will go back to Mr. Van Staden's uh, point, which he raised earlier before we close this meeting. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. Um, our closing remark, uh, solidarity is of the opinion. This bill is unaffordable, unnecessary, and unworkable. We need to ensure that when we, when we get, uh, extend the, right, the access to healthcare, we extend access to quality healthcare. Having access to nothing does not make us more equal. Thank you very much. Honorable members, we are done with the presentations for today. I need to thank you for your indulgence for this week. Before we close, and before, I was going to make, before I'm going to make some closing remarks and give us an indication of the next date, I'm going to give Honorable Van Staden an opportunity to raise the point which he wanted to earlier this morning. Honorable Van Staden. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Now, I wanted to ask a question Tuesday, but I completely forgot about it. And I need, I think we just need to get clarity on the matter. And it's about the submissions which was made um, via email and delivered to Parliament and so forth on this NHI bill. I just want to know, and I think we must just get clarity for ourselves, um, due to the fire that happened in Parliament um, recently, uh, does it, did it have any effect on the submissions which was handed in by email or um, delivered to Parliament? Where are the submissions currently? And um, um, just to get us as members refreshed again, because I see there was messages sending now 
for people looking for documents, can we just be refreshed again? Our system is working to draw the necessary submissions, which was made by stakeholders to us, to get the document again, please. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Rambo van Staden. It is noted what you are requesting. I'm certain it's also captured by our committee secretary. We will revert to the committee with the answers to your questions. Thank you very much. So, honorable members, we have come to the end of today. I wish you a wonderful weekend. We will resume with the NHI public hearings on the 8th of February, and uh, this meeting is therefore adjourned. Good day, everybody. Bye. Recording stopped.